Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moser-Katz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie, and you are listening to The Extra Environmentalist 2013. We have concluded the year of 2012, and a brand new year of 2013 lays open before us. For all the new listeners joining us in this brand new year, welcome. And to all of our old listeners, hello, how are you? And you're awesome. Justin and I attended the Degrowth Conference back in May in Montreal, and we were able to meet up with some amazing, amazing luminaries in the degrowth and sustainability fields, and even do some interviews with them after their talks and even before their talks. We had some uh, very brilliant people on the show, and now, finally, we're getting around to putting some of this audio that we took back in 2012 into a podcast format. Yeah, so back in May, we were able to go to the Degrowth Conference in Montreal and do over a dozen interviews with people who are talking about this field of degrowth. So Justin, what does degrowth mean? Well, degrowth is an alternative to the model of growth that our society pursues currently. So the way that our society is running is that we're pursuing growth because if we don't pursue growth, we enter a phase of contraction and collapse. And that's what you see happening around the world today because the European economy and because the U.S. economy isn't able to grow in the way that it used to decades ago or even five or seven years ago because of biophysical issues and many things that we've covered on our show you see that we're just going through this painful contraction. More and more people are getting bumped into poverty. And so the degrowth movement is trying to find a way to shrink the material economy in a managed way to make sure that we're no longer impinging on the biosphere and on uh, the environment in the way that our current growth-based economy is doing and destroying the environment and destroying the natural world, but then to also embrace the positive aspects of human life and really find a joyous way to be human. So it's finding a way to decrease the standard of living while improving the quality of living that we experience. And this is a very important topic nowadays because of all the crazy things that are happening in the economy. And when even back in 2012, where these things are just continued their ramp up cycle, it was very poignant to talk with some of the people who we're going to hear from in this episode. Justin, who, who are we going to be talking to today? So we're actually going to be talking to 12 different people about various aspects of degrowth. And it's a really comprehensive movement in that it's 
covering so many aspects of how we organize society, so we can't really cover every aspect of society or every aspect of degrowth. So we're going to be talking about what degrowth is, we're going to be talking about education, about money systems, um, about alternatives to GDP, um, and we're going to be talking about issues of collapse and energy, and maybe some adaptive strategies like working less, as well as what degrowth means in the context of the developing world versus the context of the developed world, or what some call the overdeveloped world. And so there's been a number of degrowth conferences around the world. The first international conference on degrowth was in Paris in 2008, and then followed by Barcelona in 2010. And then we had uh, Montreal and Venice in 2012. And so those are the international conferences. Vancouver has had a few degrowth conferences as well. We have a fairly active degrowth party here in Vancouver. And I definitely don't think that uh, from my perspective, the degrowth movement has all the answers, but I do think that it is a banner where a lot of people who are aware of the problems are starting to rally around. And whether the phrase degrowth could actually work in the developed world, could you actually sell people on the idea of degrowth? That's something to contemplate and consider because it's so much the antithesis of what we've expected out of our economy and out of our world that when you even say degrowth, it sounds kind of like, oh, shocking to a lot of people. It's a bit of a loaded term, and I would really highly doubt that you'd ever hear any politician kind of utter the degrowth word. It w- I think it's kind of be it would be like a curse word, you know. If if you heard a Barack Obama talking about degrowth and how to ungrow our economy, he probably wouldn't be where he is today. So we're going to go through all of these various aspects of degrowth today, and then at the end we're going to recap 2012 and talk about some of our favorite moments and some of the real joys that we've had in producing this show. So we'll start off on our journey through the ideas of degrowth with Peter Brown from McGill University in Montreal, where he's talking about what degrowth is and what it means. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist. In this episode, we recap 2012 and the Degrowth Conference in Montreal. Degrowth is an attempt to, as one of my colleagues said, pulverize the imagination, right? To call into question the central goals of contemporary society, which is 99.9% oriented to growth. Whether growth is good, bad, or indifferent, it doesn't seem to make much difference. Uh, what we, what Obama is dedicated to growth, and so forth, right? So, so this is a extremely self-destructive uh, policy. It's overrunning the Earth's life support systems and it creates uh, radical injustices between humans and humans and other species. Yeah, the, the notion that comes from Europe, uh, degrowth is an attempt to decolonize the mind, is just, just the right expression, I think, because we are we're basically brainwashed into thinking that this is, this is good, that it cannot possibly be challenged. So, so our, our, our minds have been taken over by a foreign power, as when, as when Britain colonized India, right? It, it basically t- took over, uh, the, in many ways, the, the subcontinent of India. And, um, and so, so w- w- our minds have been taken over by basically a, a, a 
economic doctrine that is developed over centuries but, but gained a lot of strength in the post-World War II period and is now the, um, the lingua franca of our time is the unchallenged conceptual framework of our planet and our times. Well, one of the questioners this afternoon asked how we could get uh, to speak at some of the uh, pro-growth conferences, and, and I, I'm not against getting to speak there, but, but that's getting voice in, in, in you're drowned out in, in, you know, in, a, in a large group is not necessarily that effective. And so, so the, you look at the people who've been really um, strong in, 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 in social change, in dramatic social change in the 20th century, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, uh, Gandhi, right? Those, those are people who were, were students of, of uh, civil disobedience. And I really want to emphasize the word students. It's not something that you use lightly. You just uh, you don't like something, you run out and engage in civil disobedience. There are a number of, of steps. One, one step is, is to uh, identify a, a substantial uh, misconception or a substantial injustice. Another step is, is uh, self-purification, right? So that, so that, I think it's Martin Luther King says this, that, that the motivation uh, has to be love, not hate, right? You're, you're not moving into this space, you know, out of anger, right? You, you've purged yourself of those emotions and you can go in uh, fearlessly um, and without malice into a, uh, into a conflictual situation where you, on, on, the, on the civil disobedience side, uh, are strictly in compliance with, with nonviolence. I remember on this very stage on which I'm sitting, Mangari with Mathai was here, I, I had invited her, and um, I, I asked her, she's a very courageous person, was beaten up and I believe had her legs broken intentionally by the Kenya government. I'm not sure of that, but anyway. So I asked her what courage meant and she said, courage is to have no fear. Um, so so the, these, the people who have been able to pull off these uh, amazing events uh, are fearless and that's not a state that you can come to easily. The European economies are undergoing structural changes that are independent of the degrowth movement, but that are moving in the direction of degrowth. It's, Europe is in a very severe uh, set of dilemmas right now about uh, what to do. Um, and here in North America, particularly in Canada, we don't have those dilemmas, at least in that form yet, because we still have large amounts of, of cheap energy, unfortunately, which we're wasting. Um, there's in terms of public discourse, there's virtually no traction for degrowth in North America. Um, the, the, the press, uh, radio, press, the print press and everything is fully in the growth mode. The Bank of Canada is fully behind that. The, the, bank of, the, the central bank of the United States is and so forth and so on. So one of the reasons that we went to all the trouble to put this conference on was to uh, give these ideas a foothold here, because uh, we're, we are in a uh, are, we are locked into a way of thinking in North America that is extremely dysfunctional. So we're trying to pulverize the imagination a little bit, <laughs> starting in Montreal. Maybe that'd be the way to put it. V very roughly speaking, in around the year 1800, a, a new paradigm of uh, started to come into view about the human place in the cosmos about uh, where the, the controlling idea is not a creator god who creates a perfect world, rather it's it, the controlling idea is, a, is an ev a very long evolutionary process 
which is somewhat random in, in direction, and, but which is opportunistic and which has created on planet Earth, created us, and created me, created you. And, um, but, but there's nothing irreligious about this paradigm. It's because what it, it, what it says is there, there is a vast creative force in the universe. We are a very tiny part of that. And um, w wisdom is, is all the world's religions say, is to respect the sources of your being, right? So, so we should respect the evolutionary universe. We should try to understand the evolutionary universe, and we should try to use that to shape our moral beliefs, right? Not reduce our moral beliefs to it, but to shape them, be informed by them, by, by it, have our moral beliefs informed by it, and, and also to offer a, a strong critique of what's taught in universities, because what, what is taught in, I mean, economics departments maybe are the worst, are not con connected in any systematic way, with one exception, but in general this is true, with the evolutionary paradigm. So they, they are drawing on uh, constructs from, uh, the, the, um, from the 18th century. So Adam Smith's um, Wealth of Nations was published in 1776. The Declaration of Independence in the United States was published in 1776. And they both, they both rest on assumptions that were widely believed by th thoughtful and well-educated people at that time. But in the 235 years or so since those documents were written, we've learned one hell of a lot about how we fit into the universe, how the universe works, how the Earth works, and that disciplines uh, like economics have, for the most part, not taken that on board. So, so you, we need different institutions. We need different we need institutions built on the way the universe works, the way the earth works, the way we work, not institutions built on the ideolo ideology of the late enlightenment of the 18th century, which in, particularly in the United States, less true in Canada. Uh, the, the United States is, is imprisoned by its constitution at this point. Right? Um, so it needs, it needs to be rethought. And, but it's not a popular topic that you know, the Constitution is revered in the United States, even though uh, it's a very, very um, outdated document. Well, it's part of the public uh, brainwashing is that, that the United States is the best country with the best government, with the best people. And just all three are arguable. A great, a great scene in a film by, by Peter Sellers called The Magic Christian where he's the richest man in the world and I'm embellishing this just a little bit but so he's having a meeting of his, of his board members on the train and, and all his companies are failing. So he, he says, um, okay gentlemen you're all fired and they, and they get off, um, they get off the train and as they get off he hands each of them a map but none of them a map, none of them are a map of where the train is, right? They're just maps of anywhere, like Auckland or Moscow or, you know, or the Sudan, right? So one of the things that, that students should insist on from universities is the maps of where they are. And uh, these thought systems, uh, the, the, the orphan thought systems are not maps of where we are. They're maps of, uh, they're imaginary maps um, that are out of touch with reality. And so that was Peter Brown talking about what degrowth means and how we have to start changing our institutions to embrace the understanding of the modern evolutionary world that we understand today with modern science. Um, one thing he talked about was how the U.S. Constitution uh, may be imprisoning the United States. Uh, Seth, I don't know about 
you, but whenever I talk to most people in the U.S. about the Constitution, they pretty much regard it as a perfect and holy document. It's true, Justin. Many people do regard the Constitution as something to be held up and idolized. And, you know, many people put the the, the founding fathers of the United States up on pedestals and probably would shine their shoes if that was an available thing. But is this the right strategy to take with a document that was written, what, like 250 years ago? I'm not sure. Uh, Many constitutions around the world change and evolve as the populations change and evolve. New technologies make things absolute, obsolete. Yeah, so it's definitely important for societies to look at their founding documents and realize that sometimes your understanding of the world does change and that's going to lead to changes in your society. The other thing that Peter Brown was talking about there was demanding more from our educational institutions if we're a student, challenging our education educational institutions to not just provide a map of the world, but provide one that's actually relevant. And so we spoke with Michael McGonigal from University of Victoria when he was at at the Degrowth Conference. He's been on some of our past shows, such as our one with Paul Kingsnorth earlier this year, episode number 46. And uh, we spoke to him here a bit about education and the way that higher education is changing. Well, yeah, I think educating the next generation is important for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, who knows? I mean, in time for what, right? I mean, what's going to happen in five years, 10 years, 20 years? So I, it's important. But I think it's a two-way street. It's not just educating the next generation. It's what are we educating them? How are we educating them? Which requires the people involved in education to be much more conscious about what needs to be learned, right? I mean, one of the things that's happened, not even the next generation, the older generation, the loss of sort of the liberal arts, right, where people studied philosophy and, and second other languages and before they would specialize in professions. That's all gone, bringing that sort of a, a thing back. My son is a musician who's been at a jazz music school, and one of the things that absolutely blows him away is that all of the great young musicians coming into that, uni- into that university are homeschooled. The nature of the homeschooling wasn't individuals or parents teaching their kids, but collectives of people. So that one person would teach, you know, biology who was a, a one, one morning and somebody else might teach political politics in the, the next afternoon, so it's shared. So it's a kind of inter- new way of thinking about education and to the extent that you want a really good education that you can't get, Today, maybe people will take education back a lot more into their own hands. Because if you're going to educate the young in ways that need they need to be educated to, to, to be really functioning citizens, you can't just turn it over to to you know to the public school system or the the private school system even even more so. So I think educating really cuts uh, cuts both ways. And and I think you know it's very important. I think education to me. Is, is important for everybody because it's in new forms of education and understanding critically. You know, understanding, we've talked about this before, understanding how the economic system actually works. Not having the real critical stuff programmed out by a hierarchical education system that wants to just train good you know, consumers, but understanding critical structures of capitalism or of the role of the state or the role of you know, corporations or whatever. And, re- and, 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 and that sort of a type of education, a progressive education, and then also on the other end, experiential education. People actually learning skills in, in the real world. So I think education is not just about teaching the young, it's about re-educating 
how we create a culture of which we, the educators and educatees, are all a part. The, one of the big problems with universities, well, there's so many problems with universities. It's hard to know where to start. Uh, let's start on the good side. I teach in law and environmental studies. The law school is a professional training ground. A lot of students don't want to hear critical stuff. They simply want to get a degree and they want to get the skills necessary and the grades necessary and taking the right courses to get a job that's going to get them money. Environmental studies, on the other hand, are students who are taking that class because they want to understand how the world works. You know, they care. And so they're learning stuff because it matters to them. So I think, you know, so there's that split just in my own experience in the university. The other thing with universities is really the professionalization, the taking over, the takeover of things like computer science and engineering, and and drawing students into into these fields or medicine, where you know they go there and they get a credit card, uh, a line of credit from some bank as soon as you are registered for two hundred thousand bucks. They just don't worry, just run it up, and so people have to pay. And this is what's happening in Quebec. Concerns now that you know, you have to pay these huge tuition costs or or any tuition costs, so you get in debt, and then, so therefore you got to take a job that's not really a socially constructive job just to pay off your debt. So instead of going to work as a public advocate from a law as a law grad, you go and work for a big corporation or a big law firm so you can pay off debt. So the cost of education is really significant. The loss of, as I say, liberal arts, sort of a shared critical conversation. Everything's very fractured in universities. You know, if someone comes in and does a BA in computer science, and it's terrible. Right? It's not that computer science isn't worth something, but there's no common conversation between someone doing that and someone taking English or someone in fine arts or someone in, uh, you know, Slavonic studies. So having some common form of shared education, I think, is very important. The money the universities need to, to draw now because of shrinking public support, fundraisers. So they, they really promo the big kind of high-profile uh, you know, research achievements, some massive machine they've got. So it's very money, you know, they've got, and they've, they've been endowed with this amount of money, so they're sucking up to, 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 to money and devising the curriculum and business schools with names of big corporate donors and so on. It's become very corporatized. The university become very top-down. To me, what a university requires is really radical, democratic, uh, democratization, hugely more involvement of students, you know, hugely more interdisciplinary critical debate about directions of universities, not just leaving it up to some board of governors who are all the, you know, the, the wealthy people in the community. So making, and then internships where students come in and actually do really experiential learning, whether it's, you know, running a, a local organic farm in the university that supplies a, you know, a cooking school or whatever. So much more integrated with what it means to be alive and thinking and critical and not just not just a, a kind of uh, training ground for for the the you know the professions universities you know have exploded in numbers in the last 40 years i mean back in the say the 50s very few universities i would say probably in canada the the vast majority 75 80% of universities have been founded since the 70s. And I don't know when UQAM was founded, but you go through, you know, you know, Toronto, places like York University, my university, University of Victoria, 1962, uh, 63. So many suburban universities. So the 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 era of massive economic expansion is also the area era of massive university expansion. As the economy slows, universities are going to have a hard time, as you're already seeing. They're they're really scrambling. And so what you've got in universities today, like ours. 50% of, of the, uh, the classes being taught are being taught by sessionals 
who are being paid, you know, $6,000 a course. It's really an underclass. There's actually a kind of slave-based education system happening, where, and it's, it's very serious. You've got, you know, established faculty, professors teaching four classes, including upper-level seminars with 18 students, and then you've got a 35-year-old single mom with three kids who's teaching four classes at 6,000 bucks a pop, 100 students in the evenings because that's when they want the sessionals to teach. They're teaching 400 students and they're being paid $25,000. Every university that I know of is working on that model. And we're talking 50% of, uh, of the classes being taught by sessionals. Very unhealthy relationship. Uh, f into, f within the university teaching staff, I mean, the fac uh, established faculty don't even know who the sessionals are, right? That's where it's going to go. As it gets tighter and tighter and tighter, there's going to be this fragmentation of universities. The elite research universities get the money, the colleges, the, st the, the lower level faculty teach the masses. We're going to move towards, m and I think in some ways this makes sense, you know, a thousand people in a class being taught by a video over a video with a really, really good lecturer. So you can't ask questions in a big class anyway, so why not do this? So I think the model is going to change dramatically. So yeah, universities are going to change and they're going to downsize. So that was Michael McGonigal talking about the, the lack of communication between many different disciplines that we have in our modern educational systems. It's kind of a sad thing when you think about it because so many different disciplines attack the same problems from the from just different angles and if they were able to kind of marry their approaches together we would have some very interesting solutions to the world's problems so michael was saying that universities really have to start uh not naturalizing the world not saying you know this market system or this particular style of government is the natural way that we organize itself that capitalism is the only way of running an economy we have to turn universities into these really critical uh, spaces for analysis so we can start building the new system but we're not going to be able to build a new system unless we learn about it and so this next segment here we have Josh Farley from the University of Vermont he's an ecological economist and he co-authored a textbook on ecological economics with Herman Daly. And here he's talking about how he teaches students about the money system and some of the things that he's doing to study quality of life improvements in thinking about the ideas of degrowth. You know, the first thing is that most students absolutely have no idea where our money comes from and what backs it up and how it works. And uh, often, you know, to get the ideas across, um, I often use the money as debt films, which explain it very clearly, starting back with the gold system. And it really helps to, you know, if you start with the uh, early goldsmiths and how they could loan gold and uh, eventually they could loan little paper certificates entitled people to gold and then they discovered they could actually loan more gold than they had um, by a large ratio and uh, and it's a very clear simple uh, um, you know just clear and easy idea to understand that and then you translate that into the modern banking system but most people are really unaware that our money is loaned into existence at debt, and that has profound implications for our economy as a whole. And apparently, Joseph Schumpeter, uh, an economist, um, you know, at the start of last century, in the 1920s, did a survey of economists and found that something like 90% of economists did not understand where our money supply came from. 
So, um, you know, at least economists now understand, but it's, it's a bit challenging to get students to get their mind around that money. But when they do, they often say that's the most important thing they learn in the class. I think the, the, the basic problem, and here's what most people don't understand, is that when somebody makes a deposit in a bank, a bank is allowed to loan out about 95% of what is deposited. Um, we still treat our account as money, that is our money. When that money is loaned to somebody else, they treat that as their money. So we've increased the money supply, but the person who the money is loaned to inevitably deposits in another bank that can then loan out 95% of that, which is deposited in another bank, which can be loaned out 95% of that. So we have this huge amount of money created by banks, and it's created at interest. And estimates are about 95% of our money supply is interest-bearing debt. And the interest rate on that money is higher than the growth rate of the economy. So what we see is a, even if we lived on an infinite planet, we see this uh, exponentially growing debt that's growing faster than the rate of the economy, and the debt only has value if it can actually be used to purchase real goods and services. And the capacity of us to increase real goods and services is limited by, um, you know, there's biophysical limits. It's limited by our amount of energy we have. Um, the capacity of debt to grow exponentially is unlimited. Collapse is built into our system. Inevitably, that debt uh, is going to exceed the capacity of the economy, and we need a massive default on debt, which causes misery, poverty, unemployment. So we need to transform that system. We need a new way of creating money that's not based on debt. One example of this is Civil War. Um, Abraham Lincoln wanted to finance the Civil War without bankrupting the country. He looked at the banks. The bank said, we'll loan you money at, you know, 30% interest. And he knew that this was impossible. So he issued money called greenbacks, which is what we still sometimes call dollars in the United States, spent it into existence, debt, you know, debt-free. But then if you keep doing that, you increase the money supply, you have more money than there are goods and services, and you're going to get massive inflation, very disrupting. So you, when you create money like that, you have to tax it back. So you spend money into existence and tax it back to destroy it, essentially. Instead of tax and spend, it's spend and tax. And we can spend that money to rebuild our uh, natural infrastructure, to rebuild our forests, re improve our water supply, repair our soils, to rebuild our public infrastructure, our sewage systems, our water systems. We can spend that money into existence on incredibly important things. And when we tax it back, we can tax the activities that we don't want. So we tax pollution, we tax resource extraction, we tax um, accumulation of unearned wealth to create a more equitable society. So we essentially are going to replace what they call horizontal money, the money created by banks, with vertical money, money spent into existence by the public sector, and that can be at the local, regional, or global level, or I'm sorry, or national level. And, um, and this, is a, this is a system that's not based on debt. It does not have that uh, constant impetus for growth. Currently, to pay back my loan plus interest, if the economy is not growing, it's impossible. The bank loaned the principal into existence. I can only get pay back the principal plus interest if the bank continually loans more and more money into existence, which is only possible in a growing economy. So degrowth, in my mind, it has to do with the physical size of the economy. I don't really care what happens to GDP. I think it's a largely irrelevant measure. I actually think it's a measure of costs. So in my view, degrowth is it's measured in GDP is reducing the cost. But what degrowth really is, is bringing our economy into the um, constraints of our global ecosystem. And again, it's that we 
cannot extract natural resources faster than they regenerate. We can't spew waste in the environment faster than it's absorbed. We can't deplete uh, essential non-renewables faster than we develop new substitutes. And we have to maintain the resilience and structure of our ecosystem so they can cont continue to pr provide critical ecosystem services. I mean, it's a simple law of physics that you can't make something from nothing. And the things we produce in our economy require the transformation of resources provided by nature. There's a finite amount of resources. We live on a finite planet. But more compelling is the fact that those resources we transform into economic products alternatively serve as the structural building blocks of ecosystems. When we transform the trees and the fish and the water and the minerals into things we use, we degrade or destroy the capacity of ecosystems to provide vital life-sustaining services. We also need energy to do work, and the energy we use is fossil fuels, and when we burn those fossil fuels, we create all, form, all sorts of pollution. Um, so a recent economic study looked at coal-fired power plants and only looked at their impacts on human health and found that the cost of dealing with the health impacts exceeded the profits from the coal-fired power plants. So what we see, there's this idea in, in uh, real economic growth is when an increase in an activity generates more benefits than it generates in costs. We've reached that point where it seems that increasing the physical size of our economy generates more costs in the form of ecological degradation, in the form of extra work hours, in the form of time away from family and friends, that the costs of generating that growth exceed the benefits we get from it. A bigger flat screen TV, another car, you know, more cheap plastic crap. And so the fact is that there is a point where more consumption absolutely makes you better off. And countries that aren't meeting their basic human needs, they do need more growth. Although often what's more important than more growth is greater equity. So there's more billionaires in China right now than there are billionaires in Europe. And a more equitable distribution would really help out. And it's actually very interesting that equity seems to be a fundamental, you know, fairness and justice are uh, um, fundamental to human well-being. And epidemiologists in Europe have done this study uh, to show social and health problems correlated to income distribution. And rich countries with high levels of inequality have high levels of health problems and social ills. And much less wealthy countries with high levels of equality have much better social and health outcomes. And this includes homicide rates, obesity, teen pregnancies, infant mortality, life expectancy. So, um, so I think rather than focusing on growth, we need to be focusing much more on equity. And the fact is that um, in the short run, we can consume a lot. And it depletes the capacity of our planet to sustain growth in the future. We burn up the oil today. It's not there in the future. We chop down our forests today. We don't have them in the future. We out overfish our oceanic fish stocks. It's gone in the future. So we're sacrificing um, sustainability for current consumption. It often makes us worse off. But what I would say, there's a couple ways to look at this. First of all, I do think people are entitled to the efforts of their own labor. If I work really, really hard and I produce things, I'm entitled to some gain from that. But I'm not entitled to any, particularly, any per, um, particular share of the wealth created by nature. So if, um, for example, I would argue that resources created by nature or society as a whole belong to all of us equally. So I am not entitled to use more than my fair share of the planet's capacity to absorb carbon dioxide. And if I want to use more than my share, I should compensate the rest of the society for doing that. 
And if I want to extract more than my share of oil or chop down more than my share of the regenerative capacity of our forests, I should compensate the rest of society for doing that because that was not created by my sweat, my labor. So I think we all have a basic right to an equal amount of the renewable productive capacity of our ecosystems. We also have the right to what we create with our own labor. But human societies have always very much valued equity. And if you look at traditional hunter-gatherer societies, any individuals who tried to accumulate more than their share were ostracized, kicked out of society, which in those days was a death sentence. And nowadays they're put up on pedestals. Well, people are capable of acting cooperatively or acting selfishly. And we can create economic institutions that favor selfish people acting cooperatively or other institutions that favor cooperative people acting selfishly. And this has been, you know, Eleanor Ostrom won a Nobel Prize for this in 2005 for, um, you know, explaining, describing some of these institutions. But I would argue that the market is a superb institution for making cooperative people act selfishly. The issue is, and here it's interesting that there's agreement now among anthropologists, mathematical biologists, evolutionists, uh, uh, behavioral economists, that certain types of problems can only be solved cooperatively. And these problems have specific types of characteristics. These are the most serious problems we now face. And we need to create the economic institutions that lead people to act cooperatively. And one profound element of acting cooperatively is equity. You, if some people amass more than what seems fair, that, is, that undermines the capacity of a uh, community to act cooperatively. Looking at the GDP question, I actually think GDP is a fairly appropriate measure of costs, not benefits. And that seems to be a radical claim. Costs often are associated with benefits. You pay more for a bicycle, you probably get a better bicycle. You pay more for a house, you probably get a better house. But it's not always that case. And to make that case, here in Canada, you spend about 9% of your GDP on health care. In the United States, we spend about 17%. So if we're looking at GDP as a measure, our health care system is vastly superior to yours because it, we create more, far more GDP through our health care system. However, our life expectancy is less than yours. Our infant mortality rates and maternal mortality rates are higher than yours. Our obesity levels are higher than yours. In fact, on almost every major indicator of health, the United States falls far behind Canada. If I tell somebody we have a better health care system because we spend more than you, um, you know, it's, well, that's crazy. In fact, the way you evaluate the quality of a health care system are those health indicators. If the United States and the U.S. had similar levels of health indicators, how would you compare the quality of our systems? The cheapest system would be the better system. You would divide your quality of life measured in years of healthy life, for example, for a healthcare system by the costs. The costs belong in the denominator. When we strive to maximize GDP, we are striving to maximize costs, which is patently insane. Another example, 2007, the price of wheat tripled due to a decrease in output. Measured by GDP, we had a little bit less wheat, measured by three times the price, and that shows up as the contribution of, of wheat to our welfare increased. Actually, it decreased because there was less of it. Same with fossil fuel prices, going increasing by 350% from 2005 to 2008. That shows up as the contribution of oil to our welfare increasing, when in reality, the oil quantity stayed the same, so there was no change. So think of GDP as a measure of costs. All of these things suddenly make perfect sense. So I would say that um, you know, this idea about degrowth 
measured in GDP, it's how do we reduce our costs? Everybody thinks it makes sense to reduce costs. Where are we doing this? It's hard to say. Um, uh, you know, in my own house right now, I've just massively invested in insulation. I expect the rate of return of my investment to be about 10% per year. And that means that every year I will spend less on energy than I did before. And in fact, I'll spend enough less that I can pay off the interest on my loan to do this investment. This shrinks GDP. So this is, GDP goes down because I'm spending less on oil. My benefits go up. My house is now far more comfortable, requires far less heat. So the services provided by my house have gone up. The contribution of my house to GDP has gone down. That's a degrowth and improvement in quality of life. We could do this on a national scale. In fact, uh, a lot of studies show that um, it's a, a cost-saving way of decreasing our carbon footprint, reducing our imports of fossil fuels from unstable, unstable countries, but it will decrease our GDP. If our goal is GDP, we should tear out the insulation, replace all our windows with really crappy, you know, low-value things, you know, leave our doors and windows open. That's wonderful for GDP, terrible for quality of life. So um, I think that's a simple example of where degrowth can really make us better. We know in 1969 in the United States, we consumed half as much per capita as we do today. And people's self-reported assessments of happiness and satisfaction with the life as a whole were higher. So we know a degrowth of 50%. There's no reason, we have empirical evidence to show that would not make us worse off in any way. And I think there's abundant empirical evidence that shows we'd be much better off with, um, with some serious levels of degrowth. And the profound levels of degrowth required to achieve ecological sustainability may cause hardship. But I also think the deep sense of fulfillment and well-being comes from working cooperatively to overcome and address those hardships. And I, you know, so I think, it's a, I think it's a rosy picture of a future compared to our current trend, which is uh, pretty scary. And now for a special announcement with U.S. Treasury Representative Wilford Brimley on a special commemorative coin offer. I'm Wilford Brimley. I like to collect coins sometimes. I also like to eat vegetables, but that's beside the point. What I'm here to talk to you about today is this $1 trillion coin that you can own. Remember that first time they minted that $1 trillion coin? Boy, was that a special time in my life. Remember when money was worth something? Now's your chance to own a piece of America with the $1 trillion coin. With only $1 trillion payments of $1, you too can hold a piece of America in your heart. And if you call within the next 10 minutes, we'll offer you this very special free prescription of your favorite anti-depression medications. Only an unlimited number of these coins will be minted. And for a limited time, payments in child slavery will not be accepted. Trillion coins are not actually worth real value. It turns out that money actually isn't worth anything that you think it is. And the modern currency systems that we use today are no longer based on the fiat currency systems that have collapsed. Remember those Zimbabwe dollars that said $1 billion on them? Yeah, it's like that. Only $1 trillion. And if you call within the next five minutes, we'll include this special calendar that commemorates all of the failed banks of the United States of America. J.P. Morgan, destroy. I'm Wilford Brimley, and I normally sell life insurance, but today I'm selling you this $1 trillion coin. If you're interested in this special offer from actor and life insurance salesman Wilford Brimley, please call 1-800-1000-000-000 for your very special Wilford Brimley signed $1 trillion coin.
We had a unique opportunity at the Degrowth Conference to sit down with Canadian broadcaster and environmentalist David Suzuki to talk to him about what degrowth means and if we can be happier in living with less. If you look at the polls, the polls indicate that something like 80% or more of Americans would gladly uh, work less and have more time with their to do other things. Americans are overworked. When I grew up as a boy in the 1950s, we used to read Popular Mechanics and magazines like this, and they would tell us about the year 2000, little robots would be running all over the, the house doing things, you know, and you'd just get into a vehicle and it would fly you to work and you would, wouldn't have to drive. And, and the whole question back in the 1950s is, was, what, what are we going to do with our leisure time? But it hasn't turned out that way. When I look through my house, I've got all those things that were in those articles. You know, I've got a microwave oven, I've got computers all over the place, television sets, TV recorders, I've, you know, uh, I've got uh, recorders on my, my phone. All that technology is there. But I'm busier now because those technologies demanded, demand that I respond to them right away. I get emails and people phone me two hours later and say, did you get my email? You know, as if, well, why the hell haven't you answered me two hours later? So I think we've got caught up on a, in a rat race where we think we've got to work longer and harder to make more money to get more stuff. And most Americans, I think, if they thought about it, would say, yeah, you know, this is kind of nuts. I don't really enjoy this. I think I'd rather have more time. Unfortunately, the real cost is going to be to the economy. You have an economy that 70%, uh, 70% based on, on consumption. Now you can see the consequence of that in any large grocery store. Go into a supermarket and look at the breakfast cereals. Hundreds of breakfast cereals, right? Man, they come in every color and shape and size and uh, Fruit Loops and uh, uh, but none of them has a proper nutritional diet. That's what you get in this economy based on consumption. Variety of every type. But it's got nothing to do with basic needs of good nutrition to feed you. And that's throughout, throughout society, and we're going to have to give that up. That means jobs. That means a new kind of economy. Uh, changes are going to be huge, and a lot of people won't give that up. So there's so many different disconnects that humanity has with each other. You know, if I was an alien, or we have an alien that comes down out of space and says, humans, why do you exploit the planet the way that you do? Why do you war against one another? Why do you do the things that you do that just, just seem to destroy yourself and committing suicide as a species in so many different ways? How do you explain to someone like that, coming from a background that has no idea what humanity is yeah, like? That is a very, very perceptive and important question. Indeed, an alien coming from outer space, looking at us the way I study fruit flies, right? I spent 35 years studying fruit flies. I don't say to the fruit fly, hey, what have you written? What do you think about this? I just breed them, put them in a jar, they breed and they do, you know. But with humans, you say, well, what do you think? You know, and then the minute they start using words, you get all, it gets all complicated. If you were an alien looking at our species, you'd conclude, well, there's some sign of intelligence there, but they're bent on a suicidal path. And I believe the challenge we face is throughout human history, we always knew that we were deeply embedded in the natural world. 
and dependent on it. And we understood that if we did something, it had consequences. But now we've shattered the world. So if you look at a newspaper any day, you'll, you may see a report on floods in Bangladesh, uh, uh, a drought in, in Africa, forest fires in Australia, and they're all reported as if they've got nothing to do with each other. So that we shatter the world and we fail to see the interconnectivity of everything. And so I, I tried to say in my speech, we buy all kinds of stuff and we think somehow, I worked hard for this money, with that money, I, I have the right to buy anything I want, without considering the ecological, social and economic implications of pulling money out of my wallet and buying something. So we live in a shattered world in which there are no repercussions or consequences. And we've got to put the world back together again and see that it is tightly interconnected. And in that world where everything is interconnected, human beings have become a very, very powerful species. We are undermining the things that keep us alive. But you know, in the rich countries, we can live with the illusion everything's fine. Even though we live in Canada in a vast country, in the United States in a vast country, if we were cut off from the rest of the world, we would never be able to survive because we're using other people's land to grow our tomatoes, our oranges, or, or whatever. We're using other people's land to grow our wool, to grow our cotton. And then we act as if, well, you know, we've got an economy here and we can, yeah, we, we do it by exploiting other people's land. Our ecological footprint on the planet is immense in the industrialized world. So we, it's easy to live with the illusion as long as we think somehow the economy is disconnected with what, what's happening in the environment. Now I like the use of the word, of the thought exercise of an alien coming from outer space for another reason. That is, if you, the one time that you see humanity acting all together is when an invader comes from outer space, starts killing human beings, right? Next thing you know, the president of the US is calling the guy in Russia and China because our, we're under attack from a single, as a single species. And somehow we have to marshal that understanding that we belong to a single species and that we've got to act together in the interest of our species. And right now, when you look at international negotiations at, at Copenhagen or in Rio uh, later in June, every, it's going to be every country for itself, you know, looking out for their interests. We won't have that sense, hey, listen, guys, we're all one species, and we're in trouble. The unit of survival through the next uh, many decades is going to be the local community. That is going to be uh, where people are going to have to begin to, to operate together. And I think if you look at what happened in uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, it was, there is an, an ultimate expression of the American idea of freedom and individuality. Every person out for themselves. I and mean, people were killing each other in this time of unbelievable crisis. Then you look at, at Japan after 3.11 and this massive earthquake, and I was in Sendai, which was the epicenter of the earthquake, the largest earthquake in living memory. As the, when the earthquake hit, electricity went out, thousands, Sendai is about the size of Vancouver. Thousands of people rushed out of their offices to the train station because they wanted to go home. Of course, there were no trains, no telephone, no computers. So they sat there, this is in the middle of winter, it was snowing and night fell. Lots of them decided to walk many kilometers home, but there were thousands left there. 
Night fell, it got cold. Nobody smashed a window to get blankets, to get clothing, to get food. They just sat there and waited. Now that kind of sense of community and the way you respond is so radically different. So I'm sure as we begin to see ecological collapse, and it will come through water, food, energy of course, then you'll see many different expressions. In America, I fear it's going to be, you know, take to the hills with guns and every person for himself. I hope Canada, with a much stronger sense of social cohesion and responsibility, would take a different path. But I, I think the transition town movement is a very exciting movement. The idea of making communities as self-sufficient as possible. Localism is where the real action and change is going to be. So David Suzuki was talking about how he hopes that in Canada, as this collapse plays out, that people won't run to the hills and stock up on guns and ammo and gold, whereas he fears that the response will be that way in the United States. I know, Seth, I'm looking down across the border here in Canada and looking at the U.S., and from what I hear, it seems like almost all of the stores that sell ammo are pretty much out of stock at the moment. That's absolutely right, Justin. There's been a lot of rumors about government regulating the gun market, so people have gone to their local Walmarts and local gun stores and have been buying guns like crazy. One of the unfortunate things about the United States is that really is what people rely on for security there. They really think that the way to have security is to have that ammo and to have that gun. And so I can see why David Suzuki would think that that's a possibility. I mean, I'm seeing now that the ammo shortages are so severe that even police officers are being impacted by not uh, being able to get bullets. And the backlog for ammunition now reportedly exceeds one year. So Justin, next up, we're talking with Bill Reese, your former professor. Can you tell us a little bit about what Bill Reese has to say? Yeah, Bill Reese taught here at UBC for several decades about uh, peak oil and the propensity of societies to collapse. And so we're talking to him here about cultural narratives and what it means that so many of us are in denial about the problems we're facing on a global scale with our environment and economy. Makes me shame for my We're in denial for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, it's a human tendency. We're habitual species. And even cognitive neurobiology tells us now that once we're used to thinking a certain way, once we've adopted a, a certain set of beliefs, values, and assumptions, and once we've acquired a, an ideology or a religious belief set or a, even a, an academic paradigm, then we tend to be loyal to it. We, we seek out experiences that reinforce our pre-existing ideas and we tend to deny, reject or forget about anything that uh, challenges those ideas. So we have a culture that is naturally habitual, uh, that is comfortable in its, its current way of life, that is constantly having the notion that growth is necessary and more material goods leads to happiness rammed down its throat by a multi-billion dollar a year advertising industry 
Uh, why would we be surprised that people resist ideas that suggest all of this is driving the destruction of the planet and that if we really want to survive as a civilization, we're going to have to train, change our ways dramatically? Very discomforting, very unsettling ideas, and hardly anyone is willing to open their minds to it. And because energy has been so abundant and cheap, as a culture, we haven't thought it through. It's if you take away abundant, cheap energy, then this entire global edifice collapses. There, there's no question about that, because 90% of our food is now the product of fossil energy rather than solar energy and soil. Uh, almost all of the resources that we need to maintain this uh, high-input, high-throughput culture are acquired through the use of fossil fuel. All our mines, all our fisheries, all our forests, everything that we exploit is done through fossil fuels. And of course we need those resources to maintain the population and to maintain and, and continue to create the furniture and infrastructure of that civilization. Take the energy away and it just falls apart. So the question there is, can we even maintain the current capital stock of people and all of our goods uh, without some functional substitute for fossil fuel and the simple reality is we don't have one at the present time and that's one of the reasons why we're seeing such a panic around uh, declining oil supplies, rising food prices and in fact rising prices for just about everything as fossil fuels start to become scarcer. If you think of a rocket ship going straight up uh, there's many things that keep it on course from a complicated guidance system uh, to uh, you know the environment through which it's traveling but if it doesn't have any fuel it's not going anywhere and the problem is that that rocket will continue to, ac to accelerate it'll get faster and faster right up to the point where it runs absolutely out of fuel and then it comes down and so we have a, a problem right now in that we're accelerating we're growing uh, globally we, we are in a situation where uh, we haven't paid attention to the fuel gauge and uh, we're going to be surprised if we're caught short. I, I think it's, it's fairly clear that w within human society there are many things that go on at a, on a cyclical level. I mean, even economists talk about the business cycle and so on and so forth. But if you think of the human cycle of civilizations, uh, there are several books and, and many studies to show us that one of the commonest phenomena is that civilizations collapse, they grow uh, through uh, you know, the early phases of the adaptive cycle, so-called, but often they don't recover. And I think they don't recover because of a singular um, unique quality of human beings, and that is that they so alter their environment they so uh, use up the resources that there's nothing left for on the same site for a subsequent resurgence or, or recovery of that civilization. So for example, just going back to your, your earlier question, if this civilization, our global civilization, is based on the exploitation of fossil fuel and we don't find a suitable substitute, so there's two assumptions there, uh, the implosion of this culture may not be followed by the rise of another global culture. We will have used up all the fossil fuel. We will have used up all the uh, most accessible sources of resources. We will have depleted the oceans. Many species will have gone extinct. The soils will be in disarray. So if we don't manage somehow to maintain the status quo and back off enough to allow these systems to recover, our civilization may go down not to recycle or, or, or re cover in the cyclical way. In some sense, human beings are like a scorched earth species. We move through our habitat, we use everything up, and then we move on. And uh, unfortunately, there's no place to move on.
uh, you know, people talk about colonies on the moon or Mars, but that's an absurd fantasy. It'll never happen in the foreseeable future of any generation that I can think of. In a sense, you're saying we're going to collapse. I'm saying we have an opportunity not to, but it really does require becoming much more introspective about our state of affairs and much more intelligently analytic about the state that we're in. Most people don't think about these things because our current civilization, uh, you know, global capitalist society has been very successful in providing um, millions of people, most of us in North America, Europe and so on and so forth, with unprecedented levels of material well-being. But what we've done, of course, is relieved ourselves of all the negative feedback that is normally imposed on non-human species. We haven't run out of food yet, at least in this part of the world. We haven't run out of resources. But we're surviving uh, by depleting other people's resources. You know, we move resources all over the planet. Um, the growth of the wealthy 20% of the world's people is at the expense of depleting resources that should be available to the other 80% of the world's people. So in some sense, globalization has blinded the populations of rich Western or Northern countries to the growing dilemma. Uh, we ran out of our own resource base. Many European countries would have collapsed long ago without access to other people's resources. So the bottom line is we've become complacent, we've become uh, habituated to living high on the hog. We're not aware that the very doing of that is depleting assets around the planet and polluting the global commons. That's what climate change is all about. And quite frankly, uh, I get very pessimistic sometimes and think that the only thing that will wake people up is a good swift kick in the behind by some major uh, climate catastrophe or something of that nature that will force people to rethink this situation and realize what's really holding it together. Resilience is a double-edged sword, and we really have to decide what we mean by that. So, for example, you, you could argue that at many times in the past, human resilience has helped uh, bring us to this present dilemma. So when you, for example, run out of uh, uh, soil, you invent fertilizer. Well, we fertilize our fields, and we grow more food, and double the population again, and, and so on. So there's many aspects of resilience that actually deepen the crisis. So we need to use resilience much more creatively. And that is to say, recognize the, the target toward which we want to move and become resilient in doing that rather than simply uh, kind of unconsciously being resilient but employing our resilience capacities to maintaining or indeed uh, furthering the status quo and that's historically is what has happened we're in this mess because we're highly adaptive we uh, accept challenges we develop a technology to meet them but it simply raises the stakes adds to the population adds to the material pressure on the ecosystems and in the end uh, we we reach a point uh, where in the Joseph Tainter story of civilizations, we'll simply be unable to cope and we'll go down. There are a number of countries that live uh, fairly close to um, the current human average global, or at least the, what I would call the fair earth share. Um, these societies, uh, with a different attitude, could be extremely um, enriching. And, you know, they wouldn't be materially intense but they'd have a strong sense of community, people would have meaningful work to do, uh, they could have lots of fun playing and, um, you know, energizing each other as community in solidarity. But right now we have a, a situation where um, we tend to denigrate countries that live uh, relatively simply with a small footprint on the planet. And it's that kind of mine is bigger than yours scenario that we're pulling off on the 
on a global scale. We really need to seek out those countries and, and those places that have found ways of living compatibly with their ecosystems and uh, have a strong sense of community and um, capacity to survive. And of course I can't claim that I have a full understanding. Everybody has a different interpretation of what's going on here. I think the biggest problem is that uh, where whomever you speak to uh, seems ignorant of the basic science behind the dilemma that we're confronting. Um, for example, we don't teach the fundamental laws of thermodynamics in our school system. And the simple fact of the matter is that to create a human being, to create a building, to create an automobile requires the destruction of vast quantities of energy and resources and we can't have too much of that kind of thing accumulating without recognizing that because we're on a finite planet, let's face it, we're on a finite planet, we're one element or one subsystem of that planet that is growing, growing and growing. But it's making itself out of all the other subsystems of, of, of the planet. So the larger and more resource intense the human enterprise, the less resources there are available for other species, and the more we dismantle the very systems of the ecosystemic structure and the life support functions upon which we are all dependent. So we are actually, we've gone from being a merely a citizen on Earth like many other species to the point where we have become a pathological parasite on the ecosystem and threatened to kill our own host. Our cultural myth has run its course. There may have been a time when it, it was useful in moving things forward, but certainly if we don't change our cultural myth to conform to biophysical reality, which is the reality of limits to material growth, uh, then we're going to have huge problems on our hands in the next few decades. Pe people acquire their cultural narrative over the course of 20 or 30 years of simply growing up in that culture. Um, well, what we're engaged in right here is a process called social learning. And to change a cultural narrative peacefully often takes decades. And you can see that in our own lifetimes. Uh, civil liberties is a new dimension of our cultural neighbor, uh, narrative. But it took decades for civil liberties to become a respected uh, idea. Women's liberation, gay liberation, or other dimensions of our current cultural narrative that take decades before they're generally accepted. And there's still a large number of people who don't accept any of those things. So changing the cultural narrative purposefully through this kind of uh, exchange is a very slow and arduous process. It takes decades. The problem is we don't have decades and uh, I think we, we really need to have all of our media come together in a conscious effort to bring this new story of our dilemma out there. We've got to take advantage the full, of the full power of the, the internet. So the means are there to change the cultural narrative, but we're not using them. In fact, on the contrary, the opposition, as it were, the, those with a vested interest in the status quo, have organized in such a way as to spend tens of millions of dollars every year on a counter story, one that denies the science, uh, undermines the beliefs in climate change and um, most of the other kinds of trends that I'm concerned about, so that we are creating a misinformed population who are politically engaged and simply incapable of responding intelligently to the circumstances we find ourselves in.
people are denying that we are in the crisis that we're in because it's too scary, it's too big, they feel disempowered, paralyzed, in despair. I think a lot of people are in despair consciously and unconsciously. People read the newspapers or listen to newscasts and they say, I can't do anything about it. And friends I know won't even read the front page of the New York Times or Washington Post or The Guardian or whatever. So how do we absorb a sense that the nation states are crumbling in certain respects, that the economic systems and the driver for progress and growth is no longer a guiding vision for our planet and how do we come to grips with the sense that ecosystems are being deeply imperiled, uh, species are being lost and so on. So whether it's willful ignorance or this sense of disempowerment, um, I think all of this is part of a piece and it's causing immense dis-ease, disruption even addictions as we know. So how do we break through that and say we are in this together but we're not going to give in to despair or disempowerment. That the human has faced immense issues and challenges, be they the two world wars, um, you know, be, be they um, earlier societal collapses and so on, be they something like changing civil rights in our own country. You're both from North Carolina and you know that's where the sit-in in Greensboro, North Carolina at the Woolworth counter began to say, people have a right to a soda, a hamburger, an ice cream. You know, what's going on here? I grew up in that generation that was like, it was apartheid. You can't go to school. You can't go to a church if, you, if you're African American. We have been able with immense and still unfinished consequences to shift the sense of civil rights, from segregation to civil rights to integration. It's an ongoing ongoing journey but we need a story to do that kind of thing and we need something that brings forward in that case justice <clears throat> integrity equality and so on that's what we need for our moment now we grew up we were all educated in geography and and even grammar school to say here's all the resources here's our national forests you know here's supplies of coal that are boundless endless oil it's never going to run out we grew up in that kind of generation nothing's going to run out and it, we are entitled to it because we're creating one of the greatest societies on earth and so on we never saw the consequences we did not foresee <laughs> and it's almost incredible that we didn't because what is an adult supposed to do? Recognize some limits and that's what every adult imposes on their children. Some sense of boundaries, of laws and so on. It's as simple as home training, home economics, a sense of limits and boundaries. So it's going to be hard to change the story because we grew up with the power of it that was connected to patriotism, it was connected to the sense of the American dream and so on. This is what we're doing, we're shifting a sense of the American dream in particular that has exploded around the world um, and not realizable and therefore causing tremendous problems. But when you have economic interests as powerful as many corporate interests are, it is very hard to change the story and media is contributing to the solidity of this story. It's going to take decades to change. We can bash the other 
we can denigrate corporations. We know the problems with big business and so on. But I would also like to say, without being too simplistic, I think change is happening even in the heart of Wall Street, in the heart of these corporations. I think we have new indicators. What is sustainable growth? What are indicators that take the environment into consideration? My brother's head of Chubb Insurance in New York. You know, they have not insured coastal waters for years. And he is deeply concerned about climate change. The insurance industry needs to be brought into this discussion, in fact. The reinsurance, Munich Re, Swiss Re, they are, I think, immense untapped partners in the climate change discussion. So how do we get into that, the corporate world, in a way that's going to bring individuals who care about the, their children and the future and make these changes together. It's, it's part of the partnerships that need to happen. Mary Evelyn Tucker was discussing how corporations are starting to understand the magnitude of problems like climate change, how insurance companies like Munich Re are really understanding the cost of disasters that are skyrocketing as bigger and bigger hurricanes and tornadoes slam into communities. And so it's interesting to see how now that there's people inside these organizations that organize and run our society, there's people in them that are beginning to understand this. How does the culture itself Self actually change. And that's what we spoke with Janice Harvey about. The way to understand culture is really the, um, as the beliefs and the norms um, and the value systems that sort of shape our understanding of the world. Um, and these are these beliefs and norms are shared widely across uh, individual or specific societies, and so they are the, the, the culture is what gives a society um, unity and coherence. Um, what allows people when they talk to each other to understand what each other is saying, um, and it is an expression of what's important and what's not important. Um, what is uh, what's worth fighting for, um, you know, not what's not worth fighting for. Um, those so it's very um, culture is very visceral. Um, it's uh, it's pre-reflective in the sense that people aren't aware of the cultural framework within which they are operating. It's not something they consciously choose. Um, it's uh, it's a it's a background. Um, against which their lives are, are lived and their decisions are made that for the most part is invisible to them. The process um, usually starts um, at, that, at the so-called elite level. So elites, if we understand them in this context, is people with status. People who have the freedom to, um, to think big thoughts to critique, to analyze, and to influence uh, change. So um, now the ability to do that is not um, uh, biological or inherited. The access to those resources is not evenly distributed. Some of us 
you know, have more access to that than others. And that's why, um, you know, we, we um, see the generation of ideas and the critiques of um, institutions and status quo originate within the same sort of um, prestige circles, I guess, as the, um, those elites who actually hold power. Um, but the structure at the, at the elite level, or the, the um, sort of realms of prestige, are divided. So you have the nucleus where those elites who actually hold power reside, right? The elites who are the creators and defenders of the status quo are in the nucleus, in the very center. And then around the center is a periphery of elites who, for one reason or another, uh, don't have that much power, but they are in a position to critique um, and to analyze um, those power centers. Um, and that's really where the, um, the counter-discourses come from um, that challenge those systems um, that um, are essentially entrenched power systems. So the f sort of formation of counter-discourses and counter-narratives that challenge the underlying belief systems um, that shape our culture are formed on the outside of the centers of power, but not on the edges of society. Um, so they're within powerful institutions, but they're sort of on the margins. So if you could, um, not to, to um, label anybody, but if you could imagine the status of ecological economics within a university compared to the status of uh, neoliberal economics or conventional classical economics in terms of the um, importance that the university places on um, those, um, those disciplines and the professors who teach them. So that's sort of an example of a, a, a center and a periphery um, in that particular discipline. Um, and of course, these, the, the conventional economics, neoliberal economics is in the center of influence and power and the ecological econom uh, uh, economists are, they're not there. They're, but they're also in a position of uh, great potential for generating the counter discourse that says neoliberal growth economics is, uh, you know, driving us off the cliff. And so once those ideas are articulated, those counter-discourses are articulated, then the job is to disseminate it out from that sort of um, outer circle of, um, of elite status into the more general population where they get picked up by social movements and other institutions and networks. So that's, a, you know, roughly the, the process. Um, it's ideas generated. So it's where the ideas and the way we talk about it and the way we understand what's going on actually gets, uh, gets a foothold. But it doesn't change a thing 
unless it disseminates out from there. And those are the processes um, which ensure that, um, that change actually happens. The, th the theory is that unless institutions are networked very densely, not just um, sort of the, say, the, the ivory towers where the ideas are generated, but disseminating it down into um, um, institutions of social, social um, services, uh, education, religion, the media, that's how those ideas actually get out beyond just the, you know, hundred people who show up at a conference to have these chats. So the question about, so those, the change, the, the, I, the new paradigms have to get adopted by other institutions and then other institutions and other institutions. The way I envision this is cultural change is a big sphere, a big sort of cycle that moves very, very slowly. And we're all in it, but it's a very sort of slow-moving system. And in the center of that is a much smaller sphere that's moving much faster, and that's the political sphere. And so change is happening much faster in the political sphere than the cultural sphere. They're, they influence each other, but really the, the, the um, resilience and permanence of political change depends on what's happening and the context in that big outer sphere. And so I guess what we could see is if we're seeing major political changes happening, um, we, it's really kind of a statement on the, on the resilience of, of the, the culture within, its, uh, within which it, the political sphere is actually operating. Usually what we see is a, sort of a spectrum of um, adherence to a dominant culture, sort of like a bell curve. So on, you know, you have on the margins of either end of, um, of the bell curve, you've got the outliers um, and, the, and those who are willing to sort of challenge the status quo and the assumptions that um, govern the way our society is organized. Unless the center of the bell curve moves in the same way, um, I think culture doesn't change. So it's not necessarily about who's on the margins or um, what's being said on the margins. It's the penetration of the margins into the, into the mainstream that creates culture change. So the way that happens is really through crisis. So it's not a willful change. It's not sort of a deliberate, sort of considered change that an individual might go through. Um, cultural change arises out of crisis where all of a sudden those institutions that had been considered um, legitimate and um, sort of the expression of uh, a value system that people held to um, all of a sudden sort of falls out of favor that their explanations of what's happening in the world or, or what should happen no longer makes sense to most people because it's con it contradicts their personal experience, it contradicts their collective experience. So the system comes into a crisis of legitimacy in the eyes of most people, right? Not just a few people. And so the, the question is how does that penetrate into most, the, the consciousness of most people? And, and it arises out of a systemic crisis. The, the financial crisis of 2008, 
had that potential and still may in those countries where there has been huge social disruption as a result. But it, but it arises, culture change arises out of a crisis of legitimacy um, and a failure of the dominant paradigm to explain uh, what's going on and to offer plausible solutions to it. And from that generates um, a, a process of, um, of change. I think we don't spend enough time thinking about culture. I think we sort of take it for granted and we're not focused and organized around long-term systemic change or paradigm shift. Instead we're focused too much on the short-term um, uh, political um, response that, that we're looking for and that is really important because political change or political response to, to activism um, is all about ameliorating bad conditions and, and we have to do that. We can't ignore it. On the other hand, we're now at a point, particularly with the ecological crisis, that we understand that the, the, the paradigm of the system is wrong. We can no longer accept economic growth as the dominant public policy goal. So that underlies everything and it, including consumerism, right? So the whole, so the consumer culture is built on, um, dependent on, uh, and codependent with economic growth. So if the ecological crisis is now telling us we can no longer have a, an economy based on growth, then we got to figure out what that means f in terms of culture. And our culture now is very attached to growth. Um, so it's going to be very resistant to change. Um, so we really ha just have to understand that dynamic and then unless the culture changes we're not going to be successful in changing the economy. And those things are, you know, that's also chicken and egg, right? It's a cycle. But, but we just need to understand this deeper dimension and, and try to get a grip on it. So it's very interesting to me that culture is really born and developed inside of institutions. I wouldn't think it's re that's really where it's born, but it's it's interesting that that Janice Harvey says that's where it comes from. I would think that culture is born through pop songs and through celebrities, but maybe I was wrong about that. A lot of that has to do with our modern understanding of how culture is created and disseminated because of our consumer structure of mass media. But what Janice Harvey was saying really ran counter to a lot of the ideas that I had. But the more I listened to it, the more she kind of won me over because it really is those people who have access to some of the same resources that many of our elites do, but don't have the same power that our elites do that really do shift the public opinion. Um, and then it's those people who do have the power and the influence who do get to set the mainstream agenda. And you think of people like Paul Krugman versus, say, Steve Keen. And Paul Krugman is this guy who is in the spotlight and is driving the neoliberal economic agenda. And then you have someone like Steve Keen, who's a professor at a university, who is, you know, in some ways similar status as a Paul Krugman in terms of resources, but he doesn't have that same power in public eye that Paul Krugman does. And so he's kind of that periphery uh, elite as opposed to the central elite like 
Paul Krugman is. And so it's those periphery elites that can come up with these ideas and develop methodologies for, say, a debt jubilee. And then, uh, as Janice Harvey was saying, there's the crisis. The system loses its legitimacy. People look for answers. And then they find someone like Steve Keen, and then they can jump over to his ideas and take them on. And then that whole mainstream center point of the curve shifts in that direction. And so one of the things that our new culture will have to acknowledge is net energy and the biophysical economy that people like Charlie Hall have been working on for decades. And then we're going to talk with Gail Tverberg from her blog, Our Finite World, about what peak oil looks like in the global picture. And I can only hope and pray you understand. Many people in these various conferences since even the 1960s have been calling for some needs for the limits to growth or something like that, uh, or else that the limits to growth will be upon us by resource constraints. And um, these ideas were, were very much alive when I was a graduate student in the late 1960s. And during that time, it was very much part of the curriculum at, for example, the University of North Carolina. We had a whole week of people coming in and talking about environmental and environmental problems and so forth. And uh, there was this limits to growth study and that a lot of people looked at that and I was very interested in it. But then the price of oil came down and we understand why that was. Uh, for biophysical reasons, the price of oil came down and uh, people didn't care anymore. The economists thought they'd won the argument, which they in fact had not. And uh, then people forgot about it until the price of oil goes up again. Now, all of a sudden, I tell my mother I've become a micro-celebrity. You put in Charles Hall, uh, uh, Charles Hall Energy into Google, and you get usually between 5 and 15 million hits, depending on I don't know what happens at Google. But, uh, and as far as I've been able to stand going on those things, about half of them are to this Charles Hall. This Charles Hall and Space Aliens, that's not me. And Charles Hall and Aluminum, that's not me, but uh, all the ones on energy, um, in fact. So somebody's paying attention. A lot of people, I think, are paying attention, but, but they're scattered. They're here and there, and it's not mainstream, and uh, it's not endorsed in any way by ecological economics or certainly by any conventional economics. Uh, how do conventional economics deal with me? They, they don't. They, they don't want this discussion. I'm ready to go into any economics department anywhere in the world and, and give the same talk. Um, and I have great confidence in what I do because as a, somebody trained in physics and chemistry and biology and geology and all of the, the, the real, I should be careful, the, the natural sciences, um, you know, we, we know how to do science. And any science that you do has to be consistent with the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, it has to be based on, it has to have the right boundaries. It has to ask and test hypotheses. Conventional economics doesn't do any of those things. So I'm not going to go in there and argue as an economist. I wouldn't. I'd go in there and argue as somebody who understands very well natural sciences, which they are not constrained by, even though real economies are. Economists frequently are not. We teach a million young people a year in the United States 
economic as, economics as if it were something real, where to some large degree, in my opinion, it's a series of fairy tales. Energy return on investment is the energy that you get back from investing and getting energy. Let me start with a biological example. Uh, a cheetah, if it's trying to uh, race, down a, uh, race down a gazelle, has got to get more energy from the chase, 90% uh, of which are unsuccessful, than she gets from uh, the energy invested in the cheetah. And the cheetah uses so much energy that they overheat and, and have to stop running at some point because they're really using a lot of energy. So, uh, but not only that, she has to get enough energy to, uh, um, to produce her, her, her kittens, to lactate, to do all of the things uh, train her young and all of those things. And in, in the natural world, any organism, a tree, uh, a fish in the stream, and I've studied fish a lot, uh, any of these organisms that use more energy um, than they gain are going to go extinct. It's a kind of iron law of natural selection. Uh, we, we asked this question uh, I did with Cutler Cleveland, who was an undergraduate student of mine back in 1981. We asked this question about looking for oil in the United States and found that the energy cost of drilling for oil was going up while the energy return was going down. Now, if you want to say drill in the Alaska wildlife refuge where we know there's oil, that makes sense. Um, and if you want to go, well, let's go and drill in some brand new place that we don't have any information. But simply increasing our drilling rate in the way that we normally do when the price of oil goes up does not bring in more oil, and it greatly reduces the energy return on investment. At least historically, that's been very much the case in the United States and in other countries as well. The political statement, drill, baby, drill, uh, doesn't have any validity, at least historically, because when we've drilled more, we haven't found more oil, and we've used more energy in doing that drilling, because we basically you can only find oil by collecting information over time from the fields that you've already drilled to get information about where is the next good place to drill. I've, I've been teaching this stuff for 30, 40 years, I've never had a student take this basic information from me and, and not basically say, yeah, because it's so intuitive. It's very straightforward. It, it doesn't take all kinds of math. A lot of the math that's done in economics is, is obfuscates the problem. Uh, and a lot of it is BS. And so I, most of my students who take economics, you know, they pass the test, they might even get an A, but they say, well, it has no meaning to me. It's, it's, it's uh, just stuff you study for the exam, whereas this stuff, I understand it. I understand it when I have my breakfast. You understand it when you do the dishes, because what, what is doing dishes about? You, you add energy with scrubbing, and you, you uh, use hot water, which has more energy, which uh, emulsifies the food particles, and... And, um, and if you're really smart, you leave the dishes in the sink overnight and let the, what's called Gibbs-free energy, or approximately that, for the clean water um, do, the, do the work for you. Clean water has high energy content, can do a lot of work because of the oppositely, the polarized uh, hydrogen and oxygen molecules. So this, once you start thinking about energy, absolutely everything you do is is about 
energy. Everything, absolutely everything that moves in the world is about energy, and you better understand the energy. And the economic system, of course, is about moving stuff from raw materials into finished goods, so it's got to be about, it's got to be about uh, energy. And why, why economists, I'll give you a good example. There's a, uh, something called a production function in economics, a Cobb-Douglas production function. This is one of many examples I could give you. So if you do a Cobb-Douglas production function in economics, you say the production of stuff, of goods and services, um, is a function of capital and labor. That's what they like, capital and labor. That's what the economist is. And, and you put this, take this equation and look at the growth, for example, of the United States economy. A guy named Denison wrote three books on this. And he is left with about half of the growth unexplained. And so what the economists would say, oh, well, we can't explain that because the increase in labor is only this much, the increase in capital is only this much, the increase in the economy is that much. We can only explain half of the growth. The rest must be due to technology, to the spark of human ingenuity. But my uh, colleague, Reiner Kummel, puts energy into the equation, and not only does the residual disappear, in other words, technology has no meaning except through more energy, but energy is more powerful than either capital or labor. After the second book, I sent some data to Denison showing him, hey, this is how it is. He wrote me back a very nice letter. And then he wrote his third book not even mentioning energy. So I don't know where these guys come from. They're out to lunch. They, they borrow uh, an equation from physics back in 1880 or so, and they, they, they think they're doing real science. And even the way that they use uh, this equation, something called Hamiltonians, violates the laws of thermodynamics. So, so any real, a real scientist looks at what the economist does, and it's a joke. I wouldn't let my freshmen get away with this. I used to publish in Science and Nature all the time, this, even this kind of stuff. And you can't, I can't do that anymore. Um, so, but it's catching on. It's catching on. A lot of people, because it's so bloody simple and bloody obvious, and it's so intuitive, and I haven't heard anybody, and I say to any of your readers, you, if you think I'm wrong, I mean, you can go to my website, Google Charles Hall Energy, go right to my website, and you tell me what's wrong, and I'll answer you, and, and if you are right and I'm wrong, if I've done something wrong, then I will put it on my website. Um, well, net energy is the, uh, you have to get energy to live, you're, you're warm right now. You're using energy to maintain your physiological structure, your genetic structure. So, um, so you've got to get energy in order to do that. You do that by eating. And in our society, food is so abundant now because of fossil fuels that we eat too much. But for most of our evolutionary history, it's been probably fairly tough, at least around the whole year, to get enough energy to make it. So uh, the first thing is you've got to have energy to live. Energy is the ability to do work. It's, it's a little bit, <laughs> if you really dig in deep, it's harder to define energy than you think. But photons come in from the sun, and they got some punch. And green plants are able to capture that energy and pass it through food chains. And so it gets set down. And when you, when you drive a car, if you drove a car here and took the bus, you're, you're, uh, you're breaking those, you're oxidizing those bonds that were put down 100 million years ago uh, by phytoplankton, by little plants. And that's the oil that we do today. So you're just running on the sun. How do I explain it to work? Wall so, Street? Well, I'd, I'd go to my book and I'd look on. Here's the growth of the global economy. 
and the growth of energy use. That's mostly coal, gas, and, and oil. Little tiny bit at the top is solar. All right, so what do I say to somebody at Wall Street? Well, if we plotted the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average for 100 years here, correcting for inflation, it's just prices, you've got to correct for inflation. And uh, we also plotted the uh, use of energy in the industrial society. And, and what we have is that they both have the same slope. They, they are going up at the same rate, although there's a lot of wiggles in the Wall Street I'm sorry, in the Dow Jones, it always comes back to approximately what the energy is. So I'm guessing it's, uh, I would make a guess that the Wall Street, that the Dow Jones is probably not going to grow a whole lot going into the future because we're not exploiting a lot more energy. And the energy that we're getting is costing us more. If you're on a, an island in the ocean and your only energy comes from one oil well, and if you get an ROI of... Uh, 1.1 for one, that's about what we get with alcohol fuel maybe from corn. Uh, if you have 1.1 for one, you can pump the oil out of the ground and put it in a tank and look at it. If you have a 1.2 to one, you can pump it out of the ground, put it in a tank, uh, refine it and put it in a tank and look at it. 1.3 to one, then uh, pump it out and uh, refine it and ship it to where you want to use it and look at it. You can't use it. If you want to drive a truck, and you, this is including uh, the energy to make and maintain the truck and the energy to make and maintain the roads and bridges and so forth, then you've got to have at least three to one, but you can't put anything in the truck. So if you want to put something in the truck, like, like grain, so you've got to grow the grain and so forth, that might cost you five to one, you know, to, to do that. And if you... So that includes the depreciation of the truck, but if you want to include the depreciation of the oil worker, the farmer, the guy who maintains the bridges and everything, then you've got to have something higher. We haven't done real precise calculations on it, but something like seven to one if you want to educate the kids, eight or nine. Oh, so if, if you're going to include the families to have depreciation, you've got to deal with the depreciation of, of the families to replace the workers. So that... That kicks it up to, where are we, seven or eight to one. If you want to educate the kids, eight or nine to one. You want to send them to McGill, uh, maybe 11 or 12 to one. And if you, want to, uh, uh, if you want medical care, 13, 14 to one. You want a symphony, 15, 16 to one, and so forth. So, you know, what do you want? And, and who's going to get it? So we think these, uh, these issues bring a lot of focus on the issue of how do we slice the pie, because it looks to us in much of the Western society, the pie ain't going to get much bigger. Well, the, the best we know is from Cuba, because uh, Russia cut off the oil to Cuba in 1988, and the society was completely transformed. And, and, and the food disappeared from the supermarkets in a week. And the average uh, Cuban lost 20 pounds, that would probably be good. Um, and, but it changed, the, they, they were very good um, about this, and, and um, uh, my colleague Megan Quinn has made a movie on how they dealt with it. They understood what was going on. I mean, you'd have problems. You'd live in a skyscraper, and the elevator would only run half an hour a day. Uh, in Japan, they're dealing with this now because they've cut off all the nukes, and I understand that you go into a shop, and they just have little tiny lights uh, above instead of all of these big uh, fluorescent lights. So uh, we, we have some examples. Uh, I was walking through the streets of Montreal with my wife this morning, and 
said, how in the world would you run this city without oil? Every, everywhere we looked, everything, collecting the garbage, you know, and bringing in the food, and people going to work, and the buses going here and there, and elevators going up and down in the building, and everything. This is all based on cheap energy. How long is this going to last? How would you have a city like this without cheap oil? And uh, we don't know. I mean, could you do it with horses? Well, we used to, but there was only a tenth as many people then. So behind all of this, you got so many more people, and this enormous increase in the, in the availability of fossil fuels has allowed this enormous increase in population. Anybody who studies that is black and white. Bill Reese said that today, this morning, and I said it too. So uh, this means we got to start talking about things that we haven't been talking about if, if we care. Uh, and I don't think we're going to do it. So I think it's going to be a very bumpy future. One kind of response is to kind of agree, but then put it out of your mind and say, well, maybe it will happen to my grandchildren or something like that, or, or maybe, well, maybe she doesn't quite know what she's talking about. Uh, I think that the people who are closer to the situation, you know, maybe the other actuaries, for example, they look at it and they say, aha, I think she's got something there. Well, when I talk about the oil situation, I think I explain it a little bit differently than what a lot of people understand. I, the way I see peak oil is different. The way I describe things is sort of in terms of a, a triangle of resources, and the way I see things is we start at the top of that triangle, and the resources at the top of the triangle are the easy-to-extract cheap oil. And we started there a long time ago, and most of those are already extracted. So then we kind of move down, and we get to the little bit more expensive, a little harder to extract oil, and maybe a little farther away, and maybe not quite as good a country that's got this good political system. But we keep going down the, the, the triangle, and there always looks like there's lots more oil there. But what happens is the more oil that's there is harder to extract, it's more expensive to extract, and it disrupts the economy. It's not the cheap oil that, uh, that our economy started with when the economy was first set up. So it, it, it caught, tends to lead to recession. And this was never factored in. People who are looking at the situation just look at the big triangle and say, my, there's lots and lots of oil down there. Well, yeah, there is lots and lots of oil down there. And that oil may permanently stay in the ground because it's so expensive to extract and it causes so many economic problems. When we do extract it, we really can't afford to extract it. Well, I think what happens is that the oil prices don't necessarily go up all that high. In fact, I think what we've been seeing is exactly what happens. It goes up a little, but what happens is you start getting debt defaults. You know, it goes up and you start seeing have this, the situation like we have in Europe. Europe uh, is a little bit different than the United States because in the United States we've got cheap natural gas, which is kind of helping us along uh, to kind of offset the high-priced oil. But in Europe they don't. They've got high-priced natural gas besides high-priced oil. 
and they're the ones that are getting hit worst by the debt defaults. But I think that the way this all evolves is through debt defaults uh, from the high price of oil. And we're going to see Greece, and maybe we'll see uh, Spain. I think we're also going to see some kinds of situations in some of the oil-producing countries. Uh, for instance, Egypt, the, the countries that are, find that they're in, out of balance as well, and we're going to see bad financial situations there too. It's not just in Europe. But the way this all plays out is peak oil, what it looks like is financial collapse. I think a big piece of the reason why the economies of Greece and some of these uh, other countries are falling apart is because they are such big oil importers, uh, such big uh, users of all of, they're so dependent on fossil fuels. I think with Greece it's actually uh, coal that they're using a lot of. But what happens is that as the prices increase, uh, there, you know, the tourists, for example, are not able to travel as much, so it cuts back on the tourist uh, packages that they were selling, and so things don't go as well. They lay people off of work, and then you start seeing the recession that we see, and the taxes aren't high enough to pay the uh, benefits that they've promised the uh, laid-off workers, and you start seeing the pattern that we're seeing today. I think what we're going to see coming ahead from uh, the, what is being called peak oil, but I guess is really the high oil prices, is we're going to see more and more of what people will think of as financial collapse. And that's going to be happening around the world. It probably will start in Europe, but it's going to spread to the United States. It may very well spread to China. Uh, it uh, is going to have an impact on places like uh, even Africa too, uh, you know, because they are depending on us for some of the exports that we send them as well. It's hard to see a good solution to the problems that we're coming to right now. I mean, maybe there are a few mitigating things, you know, that we can have our gardens and we can try to uh, make things better and, uh, you know, not uh, plan for... Uh, a new bigger car and a new bigger house and a new bigger all of these things but I think a lot of it's a, a question of how long it takes the whole situation to play out uh, we don't have a whole lot of control over it if it if it plays out over a long enough period it may very well be that some of those uh, mitigating things that we do will actually have a, a reasonably good help for some people So Gail's been in this peak oil scene for a long while, and she's watched the whole scene play out. And being an actuary, she knows how to, to look at the numbers and to see where the risks fall. And it's very interesting, her perspective that she comes from. So Gail was saying that a lot of what we actually do to respond to peak oil depends on how fast this plays out. We really are at the mercy of how quickly we're depleting our oil reserves, but we're also at the mercy of the geology and how quick the oil does deplete. 
because we can do things like frack the land and pull out shale oil and delay some of the absolute scarcity of oil. But like Gail was saying, uh, if you look at the big picture, it is like a triangle. And as you get further down from the tip of the triangle, which is that easy to extract oil as you get towards the middle, if you're still inside it, you just look down and you say, wow, there's so much oil remaining. And you see that everywhere now with so many reports that are coming out saying that we just have basically limitless oil reserves. But that oil is not the same as the stuff that was at the tip of the pyramid. So next we're going to talk with Juliet Shore about working less. And it's one of those strategies that could have a big impact. But once again, it's at the mercy of how quick this whole oil depletion scenario plays out. The question of what's happening to the American dream is a really important one. I think historically, um, the American dream has been focused on shiny new cars, homes, suburban development, etc. Um, certainly, Americans are redefining the American dream now, not necessarily because they wanted to, but because they've been forced to. Large numbers of people no longer believe that the old American dream is still in force. And so what we have are groups of people who are very explicitly trying to change the meaning of that dream. I'm one of the co-founders of an organization called the Center for a New American Dream, and our purpose is explicitly to say, um, we can do things differently, and we can still have a great dream. So some of our uh, slogans have been more of what really matters or uh, more fun, less stuff. Focusing on issues of time, community, fairness, and ecological sustainability, um, which we think are essential to actually being able to achieve uh, important dimensions of the, of the American dream. It has that material side that we often think about, that what the American dream is about is the suburban fam single-family home with the white picket fence, the shiny late model SUV, the gizmos, gadgets, and so forth. But the American dream has always very importantly also meant for people opportunity and the chance to have a good life if you work hard for it. And as our economy has become so much more inequitable, and as wealth and power have concentrated in the 1% at the top, those components of the dream are not there, so that the new American dream also means fighting for a different kind of economy, one which is ecologically sustainable and socially sustainable, and one which is equitable. Um, and I think for me, and I think for a growing number of people, those values are absolutely at the core of what the American dream um, is and should be. Um, if we think about the American work ethic and also patterns of work, one of the things we see is that in the last 40 years, America has undergone a big change from its own history and also from the history of European countries with whom it had been sort of moving roughly in tandem since the late 19th century. From about 1870 to 1970, all of the early industrializing countries reduced their working hours very dramatically. In 1870, 
the average worker in a place like the United States, Canada, Britain, Germany, France, worked about 3,000 hours a year. That's about a 60-hour work week for a 50-hour, uh, excuse me, for a 50-week year. By the mid-1970s, we roughly halved that work week in pretty much all of these countries. The U.S. was the leader in work time reduction, in large part because we were the richest country by the, uh, certainly by the mid-20th century. Um, but what happened in the 70s in the U.S. is that that path of work time reduction stalled out. And uh, by by this, uh, the mid-70s, working hours in the United States started to rise, in contrast to what was happening in all those other countries. So over the next couple of decades, the average American was working more and more hours. I think not so much because of work ethic, although that is part of what kept these long working hours possible and also fueled them, but in large part because it's what employers were demanding, it's the way jobs were structured. People got locked into what I've called a cycle of work and spend. So if they were in a long hour job, they took on a mortgage or credit card debt or other kinds of financial obligations that made it necessary for them to stay in that job. And when those full-time jobs with rising hours were the only good jobs that were available, people took them if they could um, get them. As the... Um, Income distribution got more and more unequal. That also fueled hours of work. Uh, rising inequality leads to higher hours of work. Particularly what you see is for people at the bottom of the income distribution, they have to take as many hours as they could um, because their hourly wages were falling. So it was a combination of employer demands, the sort of lock-in on the consumer side, and then... Um, those declining wages for people at the bottom. By the end of it, uh, just before the boom, a majority of American workers said they were working more hours than they wanted to, and they were even willing to give up income for it, which was pretty unusual given the extent to which people commit their incomes after, uh, when they get them and find it hard to reduce them. Well, you ask why Americans might want to work less, and I suppose the uh, particularly in a period like the current one where we're in a recession. And I think if you put it out like that to, um, you know, a population survey right now, you uh, probably won't get a majority of people saying, I want to work less if it means giving up income. But let's step back a bit and think about how the dynamics of work hours uh, operate to see where the logic in a pathway of shorter hours might be. So the first point is that one of the reasons we have such high unemployment in this country is that working hours are so high. Um, in comparison to European countries, many of whom weathered this downturn without increases in unemployment, and I'm thinking, for example, of Germany, um, the U.S. Has, has had a tremendous amount of job loss. We lost over 8 million jobs. We have uh, only made up a couple of million of those, and we still have 25 million people in the U.S. unemployed or underemployed, meaning they need more hours of work and they can't get it. So we have a huge unemployment problem. If you say to people, do you think we should deal with our unemployment problem by making it much easier for companies to hire five people 
on four-day work weeks rather than four people on five-day work weeks, what you will get is a lot of assent to that because that's fair. Um, how are we going to get all of these young people who are unemployed now jobs? Let me ask college, recent college graduates, would you be willing to take a four-day work week at 80% pay if it meant that all of you could be employed rather than having 20% of you unemployed? And I'm pretty sure the answer is yes, in part because those people will be going from no income to 80% income. That's one of the ways you do this. Um, you don't reduce hours of work by taking away income that people have. That's not workable. But you could also go to many of the overworked people who have long hours jobs and make good incomes in the top 20% of the distribution and say, would you be interested in progressively um, reducing your working hours in exchange for not getting increases? in your income over the next five years, but you get 3% more free time every year? Or would you like to have a job share? We'll guarantee you get benefits. Um, you can take care of that young child that you want to have. Um, or maybe you and your partner can together parent by working 30 hours a week each, and you don't have to incur all those um, childcare expenses. So there are a lot of creative ways that we can reduce hours of work. Um, the other really important thing is if we are going to get serious in this country or on this continent about climate change, Canada and the US will have to reduce their carbon emissions. And it's virtually impossible to do that under the current technological configuration without doing something about how fast the economy is growing, and that means addressing hours of work. Uh, new research I've done shows that countries who have shorter hours of work have much lower carbon footprints, they have lower carbon emissions, and they have lower ecological footprints. So working hours turn out to be a, a, a very overlooked but essential aspect of any response to climate change. And that may be, in the end, the most important reason for us to look at work time reductions. So I think one of the important questions about uh, shorter hour schedules is what it will do to worker productivity. And the interesting thing about this is that as we reduce hours of work, you tend to get increases in hourly productivity of workers. So if you condense, say, a workday from nine hours to eight, people make up a significant part of that time loss by working smarter, faster, and better. Um, this is one of the reasons that work time reductions have traditionally not yielded as much in the way of employment gains as their uh, proponents have hoped when they've put them in during recession times um, in hopes of generating employment because you do get that productivity growth impact. So historically, um, higher hours of work tend to be associated with lower per hour productivity. Work time reductions tend to be associated with higher hourly productivity. Um, it's also part of the reason why you can do some of this uh, if you wanted to, you could reduce working hours, say, by 20% in many jobs and give people a 10%, maybe they would give up 10% of their income, and it might be cost-neutral for the employer. They're the benefits issues to deal with. That, those are really important. We've got to 
we've got to solve that problem to make shorter hours feasible for employers. But there is an important sort of productivity benefit associated with working longer hours. On the other side of it, um, you can also do it in ways where you get less of that. So if you give people long vacations, for example, you won't have as much of a productivity impact during the hours that they're there. But the four-day work week is a really nice sort of compromise position. It turns out that people love having that extra day. Uh, one of the reasons is that we've lost the two-day weekend because for so many Americans, one of those days is spent doing domestic labor because we have so many dual earner households. So people have one day of leisure when in an earlier era they might have had two. Um, and that's a, yeah, so that's a good, a good kind of workplace reform or work time reform that yields a lot of well-being to people and um, is also associated with uh, higher productivity in those other four days. I think the biggest misunderstanding that people have about work time reduction is that it has to be very economically costly. And of course, if we think about taking the current um, levels of pay and reducing working hours without reducing pay, yes, that's costly, and no, that's not a good way to do it. Um, but if we think about, say, let's take productivity growth that we are currently experiencing good productivity growth in, in the United States, for example, um, and we ask the question, who should get the benefit of that productivity growth? Should it go to profits, as it has been doing? Or should it go to the workers who are more productive and give them some more time off? It becomes a much more attractive proposition. So we need to look forward when we think about work time reductions and think about how we can take productivity growth in the form of shorter hours. Many European countries have been doing this. They have reduced their hours far below where the U.S. is. The average German worker is working more than 300 fewer hours a year than the average American worker. They have extraordinary productivity. They've had a very successful export economy. They have a really high quality of life. And they've had virtually no unemployment as a result of this downturn. The Netherlands is in a similar case, a situation. And we can see all across Europe that uh, shorter working hours have been one of the distinctive features that have made European workers much better off um, than American workers. So I think this high unemployment that we have now is a really important opportunity for us to step back and say, let's look at what's happened to working hours, how long working hours are undermining our quality of life, are giving extraordinary stress to people, are undermining family life and community, are exacerbating carbon emissions, and are making it impossible to solve our unemployment problem. When we think of them in that more integrated way, I think it becomes clear that they're a very important part of a solution for going forward. Everybody's 
So to close out our coverage of the Montreal Degrowth Conference, we're going to be speaking with one of the founders of the field of ecological economics, Juan Martinez Allier. Then we're going to be discussing degrowth with Eric Asadorian of the World Watch Institute, who put degrowth for the first time into the World Watch Institute's State of the World Report. And the State of the World Report has been a mainstay in environmental circles. And so it was really controversial in some ways that degrowth actually made it onto the agenda. So Juan Martinez Zalier is going to be speaking about how many of these ideas aren't anything that's new, how we're really just resurrecting all of these ideas that have been developed many, many years ago. And he's going to be discussing some of the ways in which the financial sector has begun to run the entire economy. Many of these ideas come from the 40s already, from the 50s, from the 60s, when one looks at the people who were not recognized as, as precursors. In fact, there is a very famous one who spent some time here in, in, in Montreal and in this university, Frederick Soddy, who wrote about uh, radioactivity. In fact, he discovered radioactivity here with Rutherford, went back to Oxford, and then he wrote a lot about the economy, finances and the economy, how finances could increase the financial system, but it was very difficult to increase the real production of the economy based on the fossil fuels. I'm talking of Frederick Soddy from the 20s. So the question should be why it has taken so long for people to discuss climate change, biodiversity loss, and the contradiction between the economy and the environment, because we are not discovering anything new. So it has been like a, well, I wouldn't say a conspiracy, but a kind of agreement, social agreement, not to talk about this, not to face reality. And I think that reality is looking at us in the face, and I think that this is changing now. I think what happens is that the economies are still very much, uh, they have too much political power. And the financial crisis is even helping them in a way, although, all this is happening because they didn't foresee that this would happen, the orthodox economists. But now they have come back and they think that they can give advice. And, and for instance, we criticize GDP accounting, money accounting of the economy. And we say, well, the GDP is forgetting about the environment, is forgetting about domestic work and paid domestic work. So many things, isn't it? So the GDP is not a good measure. But in terms of the debt in Greece or in Spain or in Italy or in the States, which has the largest public debt, well, this debt has to be paid back in money. Therefore, the relation between the debt and the GDP is very important. So we are sidetracked all the time into this kind of financial discussions which forget about the real, real economy of the energy and materials. And I think that the newspapers and television, they are helping, they are not helping to educate the population on what is the real, real economy. So the financial crisis in a way is helping to open up the discussion and you have all these Occupy Wall Street or the Indignados in, in Spain. 
But on the other hand, people are focusing very much. They are forced to focus. In Greece, for instance, there is, the, I don't know whether you've seen it, a very good uh, documentary film called Deptocracy. So, and the film starts saying, we in Athens invented democracy 2,500 years ago. And now we have invented deptocracy. So the, the creditors, the financial system, is running the economy, not only the economy, running politics, and this should not be like this. It would be, it would be quite easy to say, uh, say 50% of the debts are forgotten, or we are going to pay in 10 years' time. This has happened many times in the history of, of humankind, isn't it? It should happen again now. I mean, we cannot pay back, we cannot force the economy to grow in order to pay the debts because this growth, this is false, it's not real growth. This growth means depletion of oil and production of carbon dioxide. So we should have a different position on all this and perhaps the financial crisis will help to open up. Well, I think we can operate at two levels. One is the radical uh, criticism of the economic system and of the science of economics. And this is how ecological economics was born. Well, now, one common thing to the states and to many countries in Europe now is the enormous amount of the financial debt. So this, and some people are saying, we have to grow. Well, people like Krugman or Stiglitz, the, the Keynesians say, instead of reducing the economy to pay the debt, this is counterproductive. So we have to grow through public expenditure and then we'll be able to pay the debt. I think there is a third position. And the third position is that we don't want to grow because we have grown enough. And this growth is false in terms of oil, climate change, biodiversity loss. And therefore, what we want to do is to, well, not to uh, think so much about the debt and deptocracy, isn't it? We have to reach some kind of agreement not to pay the debt, at least not to pay the debt falling on the poor people. And, and this can be done either through inflation, but this is not very good either because of the distribution of consequences, or just by an agreement, as Germany did after the Second World War. There was a, a banker called Hermann Apps, went to London in the early 50s and said, we cannot pay the external debt. We pay in 20 years, 30 years. And people said, well, I mean, this was, of course, after a tragedy. What has happened in the States, in Ireland, in Spain, is not a tragedy, it's more a farce, isn't it? That because in Spain now we have 3 million unused uh, apartments or houses, mortgage. This was very bad management, was very silly thing to do, because of cheap credit, isn't it? So we made a big mistake and we have to pay something for it. But there is a limit to this. And I think that we should get out of that by a moratorium, something like this. And linking up the three levels of the economy, the financial level, the, what economists call the productive level, producing cars, produce, and then the real, real economy. And the three levels have to go together. And what has happened is the financial level has increased in a totally uncontrolled way. And this should be a lesson for a very, very long time. And we have to degrow also, because in the US, you are producing 20 tons of CO2 per person per year. In China, there are only four or five. In India, two. 
So you have to come down, and in Europe also, and we have to pay not the, the financial debt, we have to pay the ecological debt, the environmental liabilities, isn't it? So, but I think this, this line of thinking, well, can only grow, because up to now, I mean, we have a degrowing economy, and then some things have to grow. Ecological economics has to grow, organic agriculture has to grow, perhaps informatics can grow because it's not so energy intensive. And then what the French call the relational goods, isn't it? There was this, I'll finish with this, this Castoriadis, who was a French uh, economist and philosopher. And he, had, uh, he has a phrase saying, I have come to think that I prefer to have a new friend that a new Mercedes-Benz. And I, I was in class, I, very often I say this, Sometimes you get a student who says, I want to have a girlfriend who has a Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> but they said, no, you have to choose between a, a product, a good, which is going to produce, I don't know how much carbon dioxide. Well, it looks very shiny and very nice, but it has negative externalities and a, a nice, good new friend, girl or boyfriend. And, and therefore, what do you choose? Well, depending in, in the environment, faculty, in the school, they choose the, the girlfriend, and in economics, they choose the Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> Justin, I really enjoyed his talk, and the points that he made about choosing between a Mercedes-Benz and a girlfriend, and how the economic students always chose the, the Mercedes-Benz, and the environmental students chose the girlfriend, kind of speaks a lot to what it means to be in finance, and what it means to, to be a part of the environmental studies. What would you choose, as a girlfriend or Mercedes-Benz? Well, he did say that everyone uh, wanted to choose a girlfriend who had a Mercedes-Benz, and I thought I that think that's that's optimal, definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the choices he was painting really plays out the value differences that are in the disciplines in universities and part of that whole value question has to do with culture and with uh, with creating culture and with making a new culture and that's what we want to do with our show and with our work on this podcast but we spoke with Eric Asadorian from the World Watch Institute about that exactly about what this new culture may look like in North America. The key is to recognize that in developed and developing countries, there will be simultaneously sectors that need to degrow while others need to grow. Uh, and, and that obviously is a different set of kind of equation depending on whether we're talking about developing countries or developed. I would say in the U.S., for example, we want to dramatically grow our agrarian localized food base, which has been totally decimated by by industrial farming strategies. So that's a key kind of example of, of growth. But overall, where countries are under-consuming to a point of undermining the well-being of, of the people, that I think is going to mean some new types of growth. In countries like the U.S., where overgrowth has caused social side effects, not just environmental, but the obesity epidemic. We have a pharmaceutical dependence at this point. The antidepressants are the third most prescribed drug in, in the United States. 
Uh, we have many other social side effects from traffic accidents to uh, just being in traffic to um, you know, social isolation that comes with suburbia. So a lot of what we need in, the, in countries like the United States is, is a recognition that development strategies that we pursued back after World War II, thinking that high consumption and, and high economic growth automatically lead to progress was a mistake. And we have to walk away from certain sectors and recognizing that fossil fuel usage should pretty much decline down to 1% or 2% of where we are now using fossil fuels strategically for unsubstitutable uh, reasons, meaning you know, special plastics that are necessary for life-saving medicine and that kind of thing. But fossil fuels as a center of our energy structures is not uh, long-term in our in our well-being. Uh, even if we meet, that means we have to degrow our energy usage and, and recognize that certain conveniences like air conditioning that seems like an entitlement is actually going to have to be sacrificed for our long-term well-being. And recognizing that over time, our culture will adapt deal with that. We'll once again design houses to have cross-ventilation and we'll once again stop wearing ties and business sports coats in the summer and so on. Yeah. And, and people really do love their their uh, electricity. They love having that energy available. They love driving their cars, especially in the United States. And they, they it's really hard for people to, to imagine a world where they can't get up in the morning and take a hot shower and then Drive, jump in their car and drive for you know 15 minutes to their, to their job on the other side of town. Right. Um, how do you how do you go about teaching someone or telling someone or you know just explaining these huge shifts that are going to happen? How do you go about t telling somebody that they're not going to be able to have all these luxuries? Because it's, it's not an easy process to 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 help somebody to understand, especially if they've been never been exposed to these ideas before. Yeah, absolutely. And and to be fair, certain luxuries will be more salvageable than others. Uh, the hot shower, if we actually were very strategic in our design, we could have solar hot water, which is very cheap. It's very uh, low ecological impact. It's just plastic and glass. Uh, and we could probably preserve 80% of the enjoyment of um, making up that number, I have to admit, of being a, you know, in a consumer society. But certain things, you're right, would have to go. The idea of eating meat three times, twice, even once a day is a luxury that is going to go away. Um, and the question for me is, I mean, I don't like to sugarcoat things because it's going to go away either way either because the systems break down to a point where only the very, very rich can have meat regularly, or uh, because we decide collectively that our long-term well-being and, and our broader civilizational stability is worth a little bit of a, a cultural re-engineering so that the idea of eating meat every day becomes as taboo as eating dog. I mean, right now we don't want it. We don't eat dog. We don't eat horse in this country, and yet other countries, other cultures, will eat that regularly without hesitation. So most cultural norms and patterns are incredibly malleable. 
uh, and they just need commitment by cultural elites, political elites, media elites to start redirecting those cultural norms. That's that's really the the base of my work and my my interest in degrowth. I directed Save the World 2010, Transforming Cultures, uh, and and really talked through. Okay, we were intentionally engineered to be a consumer culture and those strategies are very effective why isn't the environmental community using those very strategies to undermine the consumer culture and create a, a culture of sustainability to replace it or at least recognizing that there's a lot more resources sustaining the consumer culture than we can muster to uh, create a culture of sustainability at least sowing the seeds so that when the consumer culture implodes under its own ecological impossibility, there will be ideas of how to create a culture of sustainability so that the cultural vacuum is filled with a sustainable culture rather than some uglier culture. So for that cultural change to occur, do you think that there has to be the catastrophe? People aren't going to buy into a different culture, an ecologically uh, sound culture, um, without that kind of uh, wake-up call, without that shock? I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's definitely not the only way. I hope that if there is a major ecological decline or disruption, that out of necessity, there will be a discovery of some of these older ways and newer ways to complement that and a shift to, towards sustainability. But just as likely during a catastrophe, we will turn to, as I said, uglier forms of, of change, whether we're talking about uh, dictatorship, loss of democracy, choosing security over freedom, uh, that kind of political in the political scope and, and extreme inequity. Uh, it's it's interesting. I sometimes try to point out that our choice is not continuing down this path or a sustainable path, but the choice is really choosing between a cultural model, either something more like post-Soviet Tajikistan or uh, post-Soviet Cuba, right, where the difference is, is stark, right? In Tajikistan, you have, have now an extreme elite consumer class that has blackberries or iPhones and air conditioning and all the luxuries that we see as, as entitlements in, in a country like the United States. It's simultaneously with people in an incredibly cold country built in you know, Soviet-style apartment blocks that are completely depend on electricity for being warm. Uh, because they weren't designed, they were designed in the cheap electricity era, having absolutely no heat in the winter and freezing and, and even lighting little fires in, a, in, a, in a, an apartment where that's not, there's no ventilation for that. So a, a complete decline into just survival versus, I mean, in Cuba, where I'm not, you know, the dictatorship piece aside, which I think everyone latches onto, they very strategically moved away from oil when forced to do so, the strong government actually helped to ration food in the immediate emergency so that the wealthiest didn't hoard uh, food and so everyone had enough. Uh, the rationing uh, enabled a transition towards a much more localized agriculture. They were some of the most industrialized and pesticide intensive food system even compared to a country like the United States. Uh, so 
So, but they slowly over time shifted over so that every uh, school guard, every schoolyard, every orphanage, every backyard, every plot of land became a food growing little uh, space. And that's going to have to be a coping mechanism in our future too. I imagine the suburbs will once again become the homesteading uh, zones of, of the future. In a, in a country like the United States that isn't designed to be a walkable area already, the, the most walkable cities will flourish, uh, certain cities will decline, and, and the, those flourishing cities will have these green beltways of people who maybe don't have cars anymore but are growing food uh, they're once in a while organizing as a community to bring in their wear to wares to to uh, you know the city to to supply that surplus to those in other in economic sectors uh, and i mean that's the hopeful uh, optimistic uh, positive transition where you have much more agrarian entering into the localized design because fossil fuels aren't readily accessible or because the globalized structure that that we have is no longer viable. Uh, so, so, I mean, it's not an easy transition and it's not easy to convince people that uh, we, you, you should give up your dog because he eats too much uh, resource. That's not gonna happen at that personal level once somebody falls in love with their pet, you can't tell them to get rid of it, unfortunately. But if you slowly start re-engineering the culture so it's no longer normal to have your own dog or two dogs uh, and start shifting the cultural norms so that over time it becomes a, a societal taboo to be so selfish to have your own dog, but maybe the, the norm shifts so that uh, you have a community dog. Uh, one that has a role in the community, it, it guards the, the chicken pen or, or, or whatever, uh, or just it just has that simple social role, but it's it's being shared among 10 families, so its ecological impact is much more uh, mitigated and, and you know, can be absorbed by our declining resource base. And so a lot of environmentalists may not necessarily think of themselves as cultural engineers. And I'm wondering how people can actually go about uh, creating culture and engineering the culture so that we reach uh, an ecologically sustainable culture. Uh, that's, a, that's the key question. And, and I tried to address that, especially in Save the World 2010, uh, where I tried to map out, at least in a, in a Western culture like the U.S., the six key institutions of, of cultural change, education, of course, uh, business, government, media, uh, social movements, and traditions. So recognizing, I mean, there's a whole chapter on ritual and taboo, because it is so essential, but also on religion, on, on social marketing and media, uh, and so forth. So the, the, the best answer I can give to that is is to recognize that whatever strength people have, they can be using that to re-engineer the culture in subtle and, and, and stronger ways. Uh, if you're a school teacher, then educational institutions, you have access to them, whether we're talking about you know, classroom curriculum or working with your school community to create a school garden uh, or a, a walking bus in, to replace the school bus as a, as the means to get there. Uh, I mean, the school garden, for example, is small scale, but it has a lot of ripple effects. Whether we're, we're whether we're talking about teaching students to 
eat healthy food. There's been great studies that show that if a child grows a broccoli, they like broccoli a lot more. Uh, whether we're talking about rebuilding the local agricultural uh, zone there by increasing amounts of, of local food, or the broader uh, transformation of, of children's diet and dietary norm by substituting out processed foods and replacing them with local and, and healthy uh, vegetables. So, so there's, there's all different scales. It's not just cultural engineering at this broad scale that most people couldn't access because they don't have you know, their own TV channel. But we're talking about all different levels of, of, of cultural change, whether at that educational level, whether through social media, uh, through uh, one's local church community or, or uh, religious community, and so on. So there's lots of different avenues for cultural change at, at many levels. Excellent. Um, well, thanks for talking to us today. I was wondering if any of our listeners are interested in finding out more about the resources that you make available through the World Watch Institute that you have made available about degrowth. Where can they find that? I would point to two websites. One, transformingcultures.org, which is the broader uh, cultural transformation work. Uh, the club for degrowth.org is, uh, it will bring you directly to the chapter on, uh, from State of the World 2012 on degrowth. So I point to those two. All right, and that wraps up our conversation with Eric. It sounded a little bit like we were in a wind tunnel, but, you know, that's how it is when you're doing these live interviews and without the thousands and thousands of dollars of pro equipment that, you know, maybe NPR would use if they covered a conference. But I feel like everybody that's donated to our show has gotten a pretty good bang for their buck. And we couldn't do it without the help of our lovely and amazing audience. And we have quite a few people to thank uh, in a few minutes. But before we got to that, I wanted to go through some of our top moments and top stories from the last year. Did you have any that you wanted to share, Seth? Yes, Justin, I definitely had a lot of top moments in 2012. This show has just gone beyond my wildest imaginations in, in so many different ways. The, the amount of content that we were able to produce and the amount of people that we're able to contact has just been fantastic. And we couldn't do this show without the people that listen to it and the people that support us. It, it's made it so much more enjoyable and so much more rewarding. And just a few of the top highlights that I wanted to point out, there's dozens and dozens but I wanted to just hit a couple here. We had an amazing donation from, from one of our listeners who sent us a whole bunch of t-shirts that really just got us started sending out t-shirts to all of our donators. So thank you very much to Kevin. I actually got to meet Kevin out in California when I went out there for work. I got to visit with him. I met Kevin as well and he was so amazingly generous in putting together the stickers and the t-shirts and showing us that people really do enjoy the stickers and the t-shirts. And now he is moving forward with pioneering aquaponics in Southern California. So if you're interested in aquaponics in Southern California, shoot us an email and we'll put you in touch with Kevin. One of the top moments for me in working on the show in the past year actually had to do with the Montreal Degrowth Conference. We walked into one of the conference sessions and sat down and there's this older guy saying, you know, money system, 
failing, all this stuff. And then he's like, and our next presenter is going to discuss some of the details of the Canadian money system. And so I was expecting, you know, oh, here we go, another conference presentation. And he sits down and a 12-year-old girl gets up and you and I are sitting there and we're just like, whoa, we did not expect this. And she gets up there and then she just lays down the most polished, clear description of Canadian banking that I have ever heard. And I just want to play a clip from our interview with Victoria here. The government gave the banks the ability to loan out money that doesn't exist in the form of loans. When a bank gives you a mortgage, which literally means a death pledge or a loan, they don't actually give you money. They click a key on a computer and generate the fake money out of thin air. They don't actually have it in their bank vaults. So my dad would get home from work and he'd start doing research and then it's time for dinner and there's just like a conversation every night. And then so I had a speech meet coming up. And so I said that I wanted to do my speech topic on this. And then I went to the speech meet and I got third in Toronto and first for my um, class. And then I went to Philadelphia and said it and now I'm here in Montreal. The guy who got second, his topic was on Elmo, and the girl who got first, her topic was on the Titanic. Well, some of the parents, like, after, like, oh, it was such a great speech, but we just don't know what it means. <laughs> so thanks to Victoria and her mom for speaking with us at the Montreal Degrowth Conference. It's so exciting to see all the youth in the world. So many people would classify Seth and I as youth, and yes, we're in our upper 20s, but there's a whole new generation that's going to blow the extra environmentalist away and they are the 12 and 13 and 14 year olds who are getting out there and doing TEDx talks about the food system and its unsustainability and people like Victoria who are just throwing down the monetary system like no one's ever heard before. (laughs) That's very true. There is a whole generation that's coming up behind us. Uh, Another really amazing part part of 2012 for me was the formation of the extra environmentalist team which really came out of nowhere literally Uh, I met our blog editor, Louisa, on a bus going from Paris to Italy. Chris came out of nowhere right when we needed him to help with the making of our new and improved extra environmentalist website and help a lot with the SEO and the advertisements. Kevin in Point Roberts, Washington, a longtime listener of the show, volunteered to help us with editing of all the amazing interviews that we've had on the show. And it's just been fantastic working with all these these people on all sorts of extra environmentalist projects. And Josh out in Brooklyn also contacted the show and it's been a pleasure working with him as well. It's been really special for me to be able to work with these amazing people who have just taken it upon themselves to work with the extra environmentalists who've put in this time without being paid at all, put all these hours into a cause that they believe in. It's been been an amazing experience for me. Yeah, and I'd say that reflects back on the philosophy that I carry towards this show. I really don't see it as something that I own and just because I've put a bunch of hours and time into it. I don't see it as something that I've built or I've made. I see it as something that everyone who listens is building and making. And so it's really exciting to see other people wanting to get involved and we're helping them with the skills and people like David in Vermont went and covered the biophysical economics conference for us, which we have some interviews that we're going to be covering on one of our upcoming episodes. We have Kevin who's helped us out with the editing in Point Roberts. He went down to the permaculture convergence in the Pacific Northwest here, um, 
in Port Townsend, and he pulled out like 40-some hours of audio of good quality recorded talks and everybody, and it's just been incredible. And we have people like John Michael Greer who've been coming on on a regular basis and speaking with us, and it's just been fantastic to build that community. And I know that it's only going to keep growing in 2013 because already we've received so many emails of listeners who are helping us organize interviews and contacting people that they think we should be speaking with on our show. And so we encourage you to do that. If there's someone who you have been in touch with, who you think should be on our show, shoot them an email and send them our way. And yes, there's so much good material that we've already recorded, but if we can get in touch with someone and schedule an interview a few months out, we're more than glad to do that. So another highlight that I wanted to bring up over the past year is the euphoria about oil supplies in the U.S. And that's a highlight for me because it's been hilarious to watch how any kind of story that just moderately speaks to oil supply and the United States being the next Saudi Arabia uh, suddenly just blowing up in the media and everyone jumping on it like it's the biggest thing ever. I see that and I just get to sit and chuckle because if you've been listening to all of our episodes, You've heard people like Chris Nelder and Gregor McDonald talk about why we don't have unlimited oil supplies. And yes, peak oil is a very real and uh, driving factor of a lot of the economic situation that's in the world right now. And so I sat down with Gregor for a few minutes just to talk about that IEA report that received so much attention in saying that the U.S. would surpass Saudi Arabia as an oil producer by 2020. The IEA in Paris, one of the things they've done with this most recent report, which is a little bit disappointing as they've produced a headline which was surely been designed or at least we could have at least anticipated would be very warmly embraced by Western media, London and, and New York and Washington based media. And, and that is anytime you make a forecast like they've made, which is that the US will be, quote, the number one producer of crude oil in the world by 2020. It's kind of a superlative headline grabbing attention getter. But Unfortunately, it, it's not that useful of a designation. And there's a couple of different ways we could we could talk about that as we get into the numbers in our conversation. But that's sort of my first reaction. It's certainly possible that the U.S. will be number one. But when you actually look at the numbers on a comparative basis, it's unfortunately just not that useful. What would actually have to happen for that scenario to be reality? One of the things this headline is doing is it's giving the public the impression that the U.S. is, you know, singularly about to change the trajectory or the future course of global oil production. That's actually, from what my understanding, that's really not what the IEA is is saying. Um, they're actually combining this this forecast with the idea that OPEC production. Um, stagnates. And, and, you know, just to sort of give an historical example of this, really the last country that really changed the course of global oil production was Russia. When Russia came online in 2000, 2001, it just massively increased its oil production from five and a half, six million barrels a day. And now they're almost up at, at 10 million barrels a day. And of course, that's was great. It was great for Russia. It was great for the world uh, hungry for oil. But the question is, did that increase ultimately change sort of this supply ceiling that the world has been struggling with for the past seven to eight years? It really didn't, because during the same time that Russia massively increased its oil production, the rest of non-OPEC stagnated very badly. So again, 
this world in 2020 that IEA is dangling before our eyes, it's not a world which has more oil supply. It's just a world in which the various players are, are tiered or ranked differently. So again, that's why I say it's not particularly useful. I mean, I think, you know, all the foreign policy folks probably have a bit more to chew on here. And again, the, the other thing I would add, Justin, is if, if we just look currently at, at the big changes in, in U.S. oil supply and demand, since the 2005 high of U.S. oil demand, uh, Americans have dropped their oil consumption by 2 million barrels a day. And they've increased oil production by 1 million barrels a day. So that 3 million barrels that you've sort of put together there, yeah, that is a big change for America. And, and that's good. I'm, I'm glad that we're using less oil. Um, you know, the, the reduction in gasoline consumption in a state like California is down massively um, since 2005. And that's great. It just doesn't necessarily mean that the world has more oil. Um, these are really just shifts that we're talking about. And in the U.S., the idea of energy independence is extremely attractive. And so any model or report that potentially shows that possibility for energy independence really gets jumped on by the media. How much more would U.S. consumption have to drop in order for us to actually reach a level of energy independence in that IEA scenario, along with growing all of these tight oil extraction uh, methods? The media uses energy independence and oil independence interchangeably. And, and you and I know that the two are, are really quite different. Just to step back, it was always the case that the U.S. had a ton of coal. And it was always the case that the U.S. had natural gas resources. So had the U.S. just decided, you know, spontaneously that we would use less oil, you know, we would just use our discretion to use less oil. We, we could have done that a number of years ago. We're being forced into that now, but we, we could have chosen to, to do that through different policies. And then as a result, on an aggregate all-in basis, on an energy basis, not just an oil basis, but on an energy basis, we would become, you know, more, in quote, independent. Um, you know, 15 million people unemployed, another 10 million people underemployed, um, people giving up their second car, people going back to public transportation. This is really the new energy independence, you know, this using two million barrels less of oil, producing an extra million uh, barrels of oil. Um, you know, just to answer your question on an oil basis, what would it take? Well, you know, the U.S. is still using about 18 million barrels of oil a day. And it's producing over six, and maybe it'll get to seven million barrels a day. Maybe the U.S. will produce eight million barrels a day. That's still a spread of 10 million barrels. So the U.S. would almost have to become a European-style uh, rail and train and, and public transport-based type of economy to really become, quote, oil independent, in my view. And again, this is... I'm not sure where the American psyche is on this, but uh, you know, people are very people are very excited by this by this forecast. Uh, they're thinking about the production side, but they're still not thinking about the demand side. So, 
Yeah, and that's interesting to think that so many of the people who want to chase that idea of energy independence, of oil independence, uh, actually the way to reach it may be by becoming more like European uh, cities and transportation systems. But I, I did want to jump on one last thing um, before we let you go. Um, Jeremy Grantham's piece on the U.S. on a zero growth track. What are some of the reactions you're seeing to that? Uh, report that he put out recently, and um, what's your your take on that? Well, it's it's really handy and 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 enjoyable to see the the public reactions to the IEA report, which is a a, a positive report, and the Jeremy Grantham report, which is a negative report. Um, the public's quite happy about uh, what the IEA has to say, and the public's quite unhappy about what uh, about what Grantham has to say. So, um, so first thing. Um, very few. It's clear to me. Very few people understand what Grantham is saying. Um, if you don't understand what Grantham is saying, you probably would just sort of charge him, or uh, so, sort of in a grumpy way say, "Oh, he's a grumpy old man, or he has an ethos of negativity." That's not true. Um, it's very clear that Jeremy Grantham is not ideologically negative. Um, it's very clear that that Jeremy has been moving his way through the canon of uh, ecological economics uh, scholarship and literature over the past four years. In fact, if you go back to his, um, his reports from several years ago, he was clearly starting to get into this area. And uh, it's clear that uh, Grantham is uh, seeing uh, a couple of key things which began about a decade ago. And here they are. One, extraction rates for most natural and critical natural resources began to decline uh, starting 10 plus years ago. So again, in the decade that we needed oil most, in the decade that we needed copper most, the, the, the extraction rates began to slow down significantly over the last 10 years. And the ore grades of copper and the, and the quality of the oil that we began to extract, uh, the quality began to decline. So he's, he's, he's noticing that, okay? Um, he's also uh, noticing that, um, you know, Western world fertility rates have been in gentle decline um, for some time now, but he's noticing that post-2008, um, American fertility rates have gone into steeper decline. And again, I just don't know why people either overlook these observations that Grantham uh, is making, or perhaps they're just not familiar with the data. Um, we've just got fresh data on 2011 U.S. fertility rates. Um, they've either been the lowest they've ever been, or since we started recording them, or the lowest in something like 50 years. Uh, is, is it really a surprise? Uh, if you're young, if you come out of university, if you have university uh, college uh, education debt, and you uh, can't get a job, are you going to have a child? No, you're not. Um, you know, so we don't have family formation. So you know, what Grantham is saying is he's putting these various factors together. He's also looking at environmental degradation and even uh, applying a, a, a factor of environmental degradation to reduce the quality of our GDP, which I think is important. And, and you know, he's saying, look, we're not looking at... Um, you know, 2.7 to 3.2% long-term growth anymore in the U.S. We're looking at something below 2%. And um, from a financial standpoint, from a financial planning standpoint, and from a growth standpoint, that's just very, you know, very significant. So, you know, 
for the for the public to understand that they'd have to get into the data and as you and I know Justin um sometimes the public has a hard time finding the data and sometimes they just can't find the time to read the da- the data so you know, the, the public reaction is i don't like what jeremy's saying so he must be an old man who's gone crazy i like what the iea in paris is saying um let's party on yeah, and so one last question for you on on both of those reports. What is it like to start seeing all of the issues that the peak oil community and the ecological economics community has been seeing for so long start to actually penetrate into uh, you know GMO these big asset management firms where they're starting to say, "Wow, we're actually starting to see the impact of limits on the financial sector and the growth of our macro economies of the U.S. and the rest of the world can't really go on like it has in the past. What is it like to see that uh, starting to enter into mainstream or maybe not mainstream, but actually get play in in mainstream uh, financial uh, attention? Yeah, so it would be easy for me to answer your question in in somewhat of a pessimistic way, but I'd like to be a little bit more positive. Um, If you look at what Jeremy Grantham said himself in 2009, in 2009, he just couldn't get an audience. Um, for for these ideas, whether it was Joseph Tainter's notions of complexity or Jared Diamond's, um, you know, scholarship of of collapse or uh, Frederick Soddy's um, uh, early studies of uh, ecological uh, economics, he just couldn't get an audience for that stuff within his profession, the professional money management profession, which, by the way, is supposed to be okay, especially the pension side. It's supposed to be an industry which is thinking about things on a longer timeline, right? It's supposed to be thinking about things on a longer timeline, not, not just the next two years. But uh, in a recent interview at uh, Cambridge University, which is sort of a companion uh, interview to this recent report that Grantham has put out, uh, Grantham now says that he, he uh, uh, among family offices and pension funds, he is seeing a new interest um, in these issues and people and institutions are open and concerned about the prospect that longer term growth may be guiding towards a a much lower path than had previously been anticipated. So I think there's progress. I think, I think there's been some, you know, there's been some progress there, but you know, much more progress needed to come. On this show, we cover all sorts of heavy, heavy topics and it can be kind of, uh, you know, depressing sometimes. And it makes you feel a little bit sad to be living in this world and in the time that we're living in. But there, I think there's a lot of humor in this stuff as well. You can find lots of little pearls everywhere you go. And on The Extra Environmentalist, we like to talk about these pearls and these little bits of humor as much as we can. And I think for me, in 2012, we've done some amazing bits of humor. And I, I really... I've. <laughs> Every episode, there's a new character that we come up with, and there's a new little bit of a skit. And Justin goes, "I've got an idea about this thing," and we take we we go on some crazy, crazy directions. So, uh, the skits for me have been a, a definite highlight. We've gotten a lot of great feedback about them. Just a few of the characters that you might recognize that are always oh, that were kind of fun this year were uh, you know Austerity Street. We had we had Bohemian Grover, who was one of my favorite favorite characters. Bohemian Grover makes me laugh every single time I hear him. And Danny from New Orleans threw up an awesome drawing of Grover on our Facebook page, which was just amazing. So thanks for sharing that, Danny. It's awesome. 
That was definitely amazing. We actually won an award for one of our skits in Canada f- on local radio for the Ponzi the Clown skit. So that that was a real big highlight for us, a, na- a, a Canadian national award. So that was pretty fantastic. Of course, of course, we couldn't do this show without our most favorite lovable man that you'd love to hate, Alex Jones. And he, he is just, you know, he's the backbone of the comedy on this show. And really, we couldn't do that this show without Alex Jones or his mother and it's just it's just something that has has grown as the show has grown and Alex has gone to different places he's gone camping with us uh and even in our latest our latest mixtape he's gone to outer space and time traveled so the characters on the show the skits have been a real pleasure and a real uh, source of joy for me during 2012 what about you Justin and it's so much fun to see Alex Jones on CNN knowing that we've done several years of skit material based on him. Seventy-six will commence again if you try to take our firearms. Doesn't matter how many lemmings you get out there on the street begging for them to have their guns taken. We will not relinquish them. Do you understand? That's why you're going to fail, and the establishment knows. No matter how much propaganda, the republic will rise again when you attempt to take our guns. My family in the Texas Revolution against Santa Ana. My family was at the core on both sides starting that, because Santa Ana came to take the guns at Gonzales, Texas. Pierce. Don't try what your ancestors did before. Why don't you come to America? I'll take you out shooting. You can become an American and join the Republic. You finished? Yes, I am finished. So the Bush administration was part of a conspiracy. Well, to he murder, said never let us tolerate to murder, to murder Americans. To murder, um, I can speak in this accent as well. Yeah. The but is that government Hitler firebombed his own Reichstag, Pierce, to bring in martial law in Germany, April 27th, 1933. Alex Jones, this is, the man, this is the man who wants to deport me from the country for wanting to get no, rid no. of it's, 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 it's to point out you're a foreigner, a red coat, here telling us what to do. Whatever. Go back where they took the guns if you don't like it. Alex never tires of giving us new material to talk about. And even in his his own accents, he can make a parody of himself. Yeah, Alex definitely knows how to put the right accent on his material. So I'd say the last uh, top thing I wanted to highlight from the last year, even though there's been so many amazing uh, listener emails and voicemails and people like Quasi Periodic and and Danny giving us semi-regular updates about their adventures. And we'd love to hear more voicemails from you. has just been the number of people who are waking up to the challenges we face in our world today. And I see so many people now that just like come up to me and talk to me about economic problems in our world. And they have no idea that we're doing a podcast or radio show. But that's because so many people want to talk about it because it is a huge concern. I just went back home for a few weeks at the end of December. And it's shocking to see how much areas of towns are emptying out and just how poor everyone's becoming. And I really think that's what this whole collapse is of our 
culture and of our society is just more and more people being bumped down into poverty. And it's really sad to see. It used to be when we were in a growth society, you could get caught up on that trajectory and just say, you know, it's going to propel me to all of this material acquisition. But now that things are slowing down, people are having to look more introspectively at their lives. And there's a lot of uh, disquieting And there's a lot of anxiety about that, I feel, in society. That's why you're seeing more and more of these shootings and and more of these moments where people are having to look deeper. And I think there's going to be an initial period where it is very uncomfortable, but I think that there's a lot of really positive things that can come out of it if people start really digging into understanding what humanity is capable of. But we've actually gone from a point over the last few years as we've been doing this show where talking about collapse was, you know, a, a taboo and some Something that you couldn't do to the point where now Homer Simpson is going around prepping for collapse on a recent Simpsons episode. You just experienced WROL firsthand. Hey, hey, read the side, pal. No acronyms. What's WROL? It means without the rule of law, anarchy, the end of civilization. Coming soon to an American near you. America can't collapse. We're as powerful as ancient Rome. Uh, take a look at this. The modern world, an inexorable march of progress. Sweet. Or is it? (laughs) We are slaves to the system. Close the supermarket and we starve. Cut off the tap, we drink our cat's blood. Who will survive in this new world? The man who is prepared. Oh my God. This unsourced, undated video has convinced me beyond any doubt. And I'm the guy you want to know when the stuff hits the fan. Hey, man, no need to almost swear. I thought that episode was really great because it was Homer's obsession with collapse that caused the grid to go down with at the nuclear plant. And I think uh, it shows you that if you become overly obsessed with shit could hit the fan at, at any moment, it really does wear you down and it, it really can hurt your personal relationships. And I thought that episode was really good. And thanks to Chris Nelder, one of our guests from episode number 47 for bringing that to my attention. And Chris also wrote a fantastic article on the CBS Smart Planet site about the extra environmentalists and about that episode of The Simpsons. And he recapped a lot of the things that we've been talking about on recent episodes with Stephen Jenkinson and David McNally. And so thanks to Chris for doing that. And definitely go check out our Facebook page where we've got a link to Chris's article up. It's very important to realize that in the face of all this economic disaster and collapse, that what really matters is the people and the relationships in your life. So thanks to everybody who sent in so many amazing emails. I mean, like Paul, who sent in these images of these vegetables that he's growing in the winter and images of his hoop house and in southern Ontario. I mean, stuff like that is just so cool to see all of these grassroots efforts that people are doing in their homes and in their communities. And if you have something that you'd like us to highlight or bring up on the show that you've been doing some adaptive strategy to the problems of peak oil and climate change, shoot us an email, let us know. We'd be glad to talk about it on the show. And also something else we want to be glad to talk about is all the fantastic listeners who have sent us in their hard-earned dollars. We have Olav from Norway, 
who sent us in some dollars. Really, thank you so much from Norway. Paul from Palo Alto, California, sent us a really great donation, and we greatly appreciate that. Paul's been listening to our show for a long time. He actually sent us our first donation ever, and so it's great to have people uh, still donating to the show. Uh, we also had uh, Simon from Norway, another Nor- Norwegian, throwing us some dollars. Uh, really appreciate that, Simon. Yeah, Norway is just like pulling the weight on donations. You think of how many people they have compared to any other country in the world. And they're like so many Norwegian donators. Thank you for listening and uh, donating from Norway. We have Jeff from Charlottesville, Virginia, who sent us a, a really great donation. And also Bill from Tokyo. We also heard from Kat in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, thank you so much, Kat, for the generous donation. And also Seth in Brooklyn, New York, also rounding out contributions from the Northeast. And uh, Seth said that Alex Jones's mom thinks that we're awesome. I'm sure she does. I'm sure that Alex has forwarded our work on to her. I'm sure Alex Jones's mother definitely has a fan website where she puts all the, the amazing work that people put out about her son. And in speaking about sites, uh, we had an, a really, really generous donation from Eddie out in Sweden who donated some server space. He runs a, a server company, I guess, and he thought that we would need some server space, which we absolutely do. We're thinking about using that server space to start putting out some, some torrents so you can download a whole pack of the episodes at once. If this is, if you have been waiting to download all the extra environmentalist episodes all at once, this is your chance now. Uh, we'll have more details on that as it becomes available. And also thanks to Steve in London in the UK. And Steve is one of the many people who have donated more than $30 and will be getting some t-shirts And we've got probably about a dozen t-shirts that we need to send out. And so we're going to be doing that very soon. December and November were quite busy for us. I was doing my PhD and my master's at the same time. And I finally defended and finished my master's. And so it's finally done. And my master's is in nanotechnology. Justin pretends to be a Luddite, but deep down he is a technology lover, just like the rest of us. No, I just recognize (laughs) the limitations of technology. If you want to know more about The Extra Environmentalist, come over to our website where we have all the episodes posted, lots of links that you can enjoy, lots of interesting things to read on our blog. Uh, Check us out on Facebook where you can like us and join the conversation. So follow us on Twitter as well. And thanks to everybody who donated to our show. We put all of that money back into the show to keep improving the ways that we are covering these issues at the at the edge of discovering how to create an economy that isn't dependent on growth and what it means to be human in this context. And so thanks to everybody who is contributing. And so thanks to everybody who is calling in and leaving a voicemail. And so we got a voicemail from a very special listener. Uh, hello, Alex? I think I dialed your number. I'm not sure. Anyway, this is your mother. I was just calling to say how very proud I was to see you on CNN the other day. It was such a pleasure. I was like, guess what? My oh, my little boy Alex Jones is on CNN. And I said that to all my friends, and they were so excited to hear about it, and everybody watched it. And you're absolutely right, Alex. They're never going to get our guns. Maybe you should tone it down just a little bit, but, you know, 
Yeah, I'm your mother, and I support you. I love you, baby. Yeah, so it's great to have so many fantastic voicemail contributors like that one. And, um, you know, from time to time, if you want to call in and tell us what you're doing, maybe you're driving on the road, maybe you're uh, washing dishes like Danny in New Orleans or driving a tractor like Quasi-Periodic, let us know and tell us your story and tell us anything that you like to, a joke, a conversation snippet that you had. And if you want to do that, there's several ways you can do it. You can go online to our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com and you can click the Skype button. You can leave us a message in our SoundCloud Dropbox or if you're on a phone, you can dial plus one 919-701-9872. That's 919-701-9872. So David covered the Biophysical Economics Conference for us, and he sent us a note to let us know that January the 21st through the 25th, there's the 2013 Financial Permaculture and Local Business Summit in Miami, and they're covering so many awesome things about how to actually set up your permaculture-related business. And so thanks to David for letting us know about that. I just want to say it was so fantastic getting to meet so many cool people in Montreal that have just been fantastic in helping us out with the show. And so special thanks to Jeff and Julie and Carolina and Alexa, who were such a huge help at the conference. And so, Seth, I've been doing a lot of the audio editing, but that just means you're taking over editing of video interviews. That's right, Justin. We have some extra special, extra environmentalist videos that we'll be rolling out pretty soon this year. 2013 was going to be an extra environmentalist video year. So keep your eyes and ears open and wide open to the ground because video is just going to be coming your way. That's right, because all of the interviews you heard today can be found on our video page at Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O dot com slash extra environmentalist. We filmed all these and more at the Montreal Degrowth Conference, and we have big plans for video in the coming year. We have a video with Charles Eisenstein, and we have videos on the way with people like Dennis McKenna, talking about how to solve the spiritual problems at the heart of our society and our institutions. And we have big plans for 20 2013 that we will be covering on some of our upcoming episodes. But for now, we'll let some of these clips from our upcoming episodes take us out. And if you feel like your debt's about to hit the ceiling, don't worry. Just dance on it. Permaculture can be applied anywhere in the world to end hunger, provide jobs, enhance habitat, and provide absolutely delightful places to be. The trigger for the big boom in uh, land grabbing certainly began with the food price spike of 2007-2008, which made everybody much more interested in uh, the potential of profits from land to grow commodities with fast rising prices. Large, very famous, prestigious universities uh, have for a long time really been quite tied into the financial sector. On the one hand, they've always relied on endowments 
uh, from wealthy individuals, and often those individuals gain their wealth through finance. Uh, those endowments are then invested with financial companies in the markets. And so in the wake of 2008, the financial crisis, a lot of universities lost huge amounts in their endowments. As it slowly began to break down, and that's key, crucial, as it couldn't reproduce itself towards the end of that period the way it had done before, it gave rise to dislocated people, people who could not find a livable space or position in feudalism and began gropingly to look for an alternative system, which we now call capitalism. What was it like? It was like being in a kind of frontier area where the rules have kind of shifted a little bit and there's a great deal of activity. We're talking not in the absolute moment of the disaster, but in that period of recovery, it becomes a kind of like a frontier. So when I was standing at the mouth of the cave and and trying to put myself in the place of a caveman, when I heard that echo, I think my subconscious knew about that myth. And I did not hear it as an echo coming out of the cave. I heard it as a voice responding. On the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we're speaking with Jim Kunstler about his book, Too Much Magic, and Duncan Crary about sailing the inland waterways of New York. What we basically did was decide that from now on, we're going to run all of our banking and our money management on the basis of accounting fraud. And that turns out to not be a very good thing as far as keeping civilization going. And another part of this is that the disorders in capital formation and money are going to have an effect on our ability to finance the operations of unconventional oil. So that many of the hopes that are now placed that uh, shale oil and shale gas and tar sands will somehow compensate for our loss of conventional oil and our increasing growing loss of imports from other nations. Those unconventional oil sources, which represent expensive, hard to develop oil, a lot of it probably will not ever be developed because the capital won't be there to do it. Welcome to the special coverage. Extra Environmentalist does consumer electronics show in Las Vegas. Here we are. Let's go. We're hitting the trade floor and we're finding the newest, hottest consumer tech and gadgets that you would not even believe this. I'm 85 years old and I really (coughs) don't even know what I'm looking at half the time, but I'm excited to be looking at all these new gadgets. Hello, what what are we looking at here? Looks like a fancy diaper. Well, actually, sir, these are our brand new Google Glasses. It looks like you may be interested in our new Google Bifocals. I love Bifocals. I wear them every day. Sonny, how are these going to help make the economy smaller? Smaller? They're going to help you ignore reality. Put these glasses on and then walk around that tent village and see if you even notice any of the homeless people. What is this phone? It looks kind of like an iPhone, but it also kind of reminds me of Alex Jones's head. 
Actually, sir, this is a uh, Alex Jones phone. So you talk into this phone here and you will sound like the radio host Alex Jones. Do, do you want to give it a try? I'll call up a friend here. Hey, uh, Seth, the extra environmentalist. I'll give him a call. Hey, Seth. Uh, hey, it's Danny here at the CES conference. Uh, is this Alex Jones? No, this is Danny at the CES conference. This this sounds a lot like Alex Jones. Alex Alex, is this you? Uh, no, it's it's really not. I, you don't believe me. Look, uh, FEMA's coming for your guns. Alex, uh, you, you gotta stop calling here. You, you know, Alex, when, when FEMA hits the debt ceiling, they're not gonna be funded anymore, and they're probably gonna get their funding cut and go under. So you probably should just relax a little bit. No, that's not what I'm talking about. This is Danny at the CES conference. I'm hanging up now, Alex. See you later. As you can see, anybody you call is going to think you're the radio host, Alex Jones. Uh, it's quite useful for calling people who are uh, not into gold and trying to convince them that gold is the answer. Hey, Ebenezer, let's go check out some of the newest video games here at the CES show. Oh boy! I've heard that there's gonna be a new game that I think's right up my alley! James Government Bond! Let's go see it! We wanted to make sure that the sequel to GoldenEye had all of the elements of the original, but captured modern reality. I'm presenting to you today, James Government Bond. Now as you can see, the gameplay elements consist around uh, James Government Bond going from uh, bank to bank and buying the bonds and then making sure that the banks themselves ensure that the sovereign governments that they exist inside do not default, restoring investor confidence. And so actually, uh, the way we design the game is that uh, he doesn't shoot anybody. He's just making transactions at various banks and then sometimes he meets the Bond girls, but really they're just girls printed on the government bonds themselves. So we had all of these recent crackdowns on gun uh, regulations, so we really need to find a way that James Bond could be less violent while also encapsulating our modern economic climate. Where's my martini? Is there a martini in this game? Well, it turns out that government finances are shaken, not stirred. That sounds fantastic! I can't even wait! Yeah, so that wraps up our coverage for the Extra Environmentalists. This is Danny and Ebenezer, the roaming conference gnomes for the Extra Environmentalists reporting here from Las Vegas at the Consumer Electronics Show. Super exciting shit going down. Hey, Ebenezer, it's time to go to the Chili's. Let's go get some food. Oh, I can't wait for Chili's! Oh my goodness! Baby back ribs, I want my blooming onions!